0: Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Throughout the month of December, the Ringer staff will be releasing their year-end reviews covering the best and worst of 2019 in sports, TV, movies, music, and more. This week we're getting started with Shay Serrano and Rob Harvilla on the best albums of the year, and Allison Herman and Chris Ryan break down the best TV shows. We'll have tons more in the coming weeks, so make sure to check it out on the ringer.com.
1: Hey, welcome back to another Black on the Air. This is going to be a fun one, you guys. Um, not only do we have mail back, but I'm talking to a really good buddy of mine, Pete Aronson, who's been an executive in the business for a while. Pete was one of the people who first uh, kind of mentored me in showbiz and has an amazing personal story. And then uh, I am going to tell you, and people have been asking, they wanted to hear uh, my story about the Bernie Mac show and what happened, you know, that I got fired from that show, what happened back in the day. What was the context for it and all that stuff? So, so I'm going to tell you that story. Uh, I don't too. even know that story. I know. It's very fascinating. Pete is going to help me tell that story. Or he has, uh, Great. It's very cool. A lot of people don't know how deep this shit
0: goes in this business. <laughs>
1: it's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Who's that voice? Yes, it is Bill Simmons in the studio right now. Hey, Bill. How's it going, man?
0: I hadn't seen you in a while, so I just invited you know. myself on. I heard you're doing a mailbag. I, I was like, I'll just that. read the mailbag questions. I,
1: we're going to do a mailbag today. I think I last saw you in a parking lot. We talked for a second, you know.
0: Yeah, I um, was like,
1: we, every time we run into each other,
0: we end up, we end up talking in the parking lot yeah. as multiple cars are trying to get yes. by one of us. We're like, wait yeah, a right. second, just give us ten minutes. Yeah. So Bill, now I'm here,
1: and Bill, you know, as you know, our relationship is. I mean, I have so much affection for Bill, and yet we hate each other's teams. It's yeah. one of the most interesting relationships. Like I hate the Celtics. You hate the Lakers. You even hate you hate Laker fans. I hate Celtic fans. Yeah. But you really hate Lakers. Well, because right I
0: live here, so I'm around a lot of them. Uh-huh, but yeah. That's true. If I the lived here in Boston, fans, I probably would feel the same way. You would. Yeah. The Lakers fans, their chests are puffed out right now because yeah. the team's doing well.
1: <laughs> well, of course. Who, yeah. Whose chests aren't puffed out when your team's doing Guess well? Guess what?
0: Your team should be doing well. You traded 17 first round picks for one of the best seven guys in the league. Congratulations. Let's see where he is in the playoffs. Yeah. Where are you guys right now? Eh, we're like in the top eight. Top Eight, that's good. Top eight in the league, yeah. I think we're in first place. You're you have a very good team. I think we're the top team in the league. You dominated Denver last night, yes. It was impressive. Th- th- did you guys lose to the Kings? We did okay. I just went Buddy out. Heald hit a lot of threes. <laughs> okay,
1: you got your this, asses kicked by Dallas. A, this
0: is how our relationship goes. Bro. You got Dallas kicked your ass. All right,
1: we're gonna see what happens. She lost to Dallas twice. Are you going to the finals?
0: Oh, yeah. Are you gonna win Celtics Lakers? This year? Now this team's not a championship team without a uh, without one uh-huh. more trade. Your team has a two year window mm-hmm. before LeBron becomes a Sierra Canyon parent.
1: I believe that our team could win three in a row. That's what I believe
0: about our three team. in a row. I really do. Okay, we'll see if you can it's stay. Pretty- we'll see if everyone can stay healthy. We'll see. Davis already has this giant strap over his shoulder. This Doesn't giant matter. black strap. He's got help. I don't know what's going on there? Don't matter. Yeah. Don't matter. You wish you were trying to get Davis. So don't even throw Davis at me. Yeah. He's you guys were really, really trying. He Davis is, is really good. outstanding. Yeah. He's he very, annihilated Jokic yesterday. And, yeah. I mean, Jokic is in the, in the greatest place. shape, but it was athletically, it was just no contest. Place, he really people did. We are
1: talking about how great Jokic is like, motherfucking step down, you know. it's but, a,
0: He's a real problem for them. They don't have anyone on their team who can handle but it. But
1: let me, let me just say this for a second, though. Even though, you know, I know, you, you know, outside of your hate for the Lakers, though. I am so impressed, and you have to be impressed with Dwight Howard. I did not see this coming. And by impressed, I mean, I haven't seen this kind of effort from him since probably when he played the Lakers in 2009.
0: I don't trust it. You don't trust it? I, to me, it's like, oh, Shannon Doherty's on a new show, and she's been behaving Shannon great. Doherty? She's doing great. you just great. go back to the 90s? It's like, hey, that? Lindsay Lohan is in this movie, and uh-huh. she's really good. It's like, okay. Let's see if you this goes 100 games. It. Yeah, he's just— He's flamed out in so many on so many teams and in so but many situations. But it's different now. His, his sure. expectation is different. How many how many people have we made excuses for where we go? oh, it's different now. I don't know. No, He's in the right situation. Yeah. But no, the- she's she's not crazy like she was. Like we we hear this all the time in sports and pop culture.
1: I ask you to put aside your like hate, and it's just coming through. I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't do it. Okay, I shouldn't ask you that anymore.
0: I can't do it. <laughs> okay. Here's what I do like. Okay. I do like that Lakers games matter again. The Lakers home games yeah. that was really has been missing since yeah. I would say 2010, 11. Really. Yeah, since we won a championship. The Kobe's farewell tour was kind of sad. Yeah, the last couple years were kind of sad, and now it's like you watch these Lakers games. It feels like what we grew up with. Yeah, the celebrities are there. The team's good. It feels like it's a big game for the other team, and that's what's back.
1: No, it's great, and and for the Clippers to be. Not only good, but relevant. You know, it's pretty cool. It's very exciting, you know, in the It's ten- never happened. Yeah. We've never
0: had two really good teams at the same time. Or yet. legit. They both yeah. have a legit shot. Legit. They're probably the two best teams.
1: I wish the Knicks would be good. I really do. It's never I, happening. I wish they would, though. I, basketball would be so exciting, so much more exciting if the Knicks were good.
0: It's not happening. Never. It would be like, this country would be so much more exciting if we had a different president.
1: (laughs) This is not happening. That will happen. (laughs) All right. But thanks, Bill, for stopping by. Uh, Bill's going to help me do a mailbag. uh, So, you know, i like to have a chance to answer some of your questions, talk about some things. Um, We're never going to see AI in sports, so there's no sense in going over that much more. Yeah, but
0: there's a lot going on. I want to hear your thoughts on some of the stuff. Trace8 on Twitter. Yeah. In parentheses, it says Cognac Queen. Wow. I didn't know there was a Cognac Queen. That's impressive. She says, I know you weren't necessarily Team Kamala. Got it. But I know you have thoughts about her experience as a candidate and now her exit from the race, good or bad. Definitely want to know your thoughts. This is coming off the heels of a piece you tweeted that right. incredible New York Times piece about yeah. her campaign, I which did holy that. shit was that bad.
1: One of the reasons why I retreated that article, or I tweeted that article about, uh, the New York Times had an article about how bad her campaign was doing, not knowing that she was going to resign. We're talking about Senator Kamala Harris, of course, who started off gangbusters. She was like, I think, did a speech in 20,000 people in Oakland when she started. I never really connected with Kamala Harris, and I was talking about this in the summer. And I was very frustrated with her because I couldn't figure out what she stood for. And here's the thing. In a presidential race, you have different ways of getting attention. Uh, one way is if you have a compelling story. You know, So if people don't know you, but you have a compelling story, you can get people to start listening to you and hopefully get some people to vote for you, get a constituency, who's showing up to your speeches. Another way is if you have a compelling record. You know, if you've done something significant that people remember and they relate to and you have skin in the game in that way, you know, and people go, oh, yeah, they did the blah, 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 you know, so I'll vote for them, you know. And the other is if you have been in office where people are voting for you having been in a position like vice president or that sort of thing. So you have the institutional um, history that people already know. They don't have to be introduced to you. You're already there. You know, that's why vice presidents and incumbents, that kind of stuff, they have the biggest chance of winning. They don't need this big introduction, but their their uh, challenge always is vision, because sometimes it's just like I'm here. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to vote for me, you know, but usually the people who coming up are the people who have vision. You know, they have something to say. They have that story or they have. Oh, the other one was plan. You either have story or you have plan. Right. You have a vision for America that people like or you have a compelling story that people want to get behind. You know?
0: So you're basically describing the NBA MVP race every year. <laughs> right. You need a narrative.
1: You do because Americans respond to story. That's what they really respond to. As a writer, my Luca right down. narrative. Great, I love his story. twenty year old guy. Writing.
0: Amazing to watch. Great.
1: Maybe so, he's the MVP. Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris really didn't have a story that was that interesting, or she didn't wish to share with us. You know. She gave us a piece of it, but in a cynical way when she went after Joe Biden and said, I was that little girl type of thing, which sounded like this was a story, and it sounded like she was ad-libbing, but then she had these T-shirts made up, so it seemed kind of cynical (laughs) at the same time, you know? Yeah. So she didn't quite have a story. Okay, so do you have a plan? Like, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, they're in the plan category. They don't have a story, but they have vision. They have a plan. It's other ways somebody can get behind you, I mean, right?
0: Bernie's vision is insane, but it's a
1: vision. It's still a vision. Yeah. That's how he got— Money's yep. going to fall out of the sky to pay for stuff. Doesn't matter. If you have a vision, you could say the vision's whack, right. but have a vision, you know? He believes it. And then people can either decide to get behind your vision or not, but at least if you have a vision, it's specific, you know? Warren Bernie always had the biggest visions for what they want to do, which is why people got behind them in big ways, which is why when you have vision, by the way, you keep people, I think, longer than if you have story. Story has an expiration date, and you better have something else behind it. The problem with Kamala Kamala Harris is she was—people were painting things on her that weren't necessarily her. You know, they were— Hoping she'd be the next Obama or this type of thing. She was this prosecutor, and when she did the Judiciary Committee thing in the Kavanaugh hearing, she was brilliant, you know? Yeah. And that's where she shines when she's attacking somebody, she's breaking you down, you know? She's charismatic and she's smart, and she's kind of has a, a wry wit that comes across really well in a prosecutorial. Um, context. It comes a, a, across great there because she's not talking about herself. She's breaking you down.
0: You want her prosecuting O.J. in 1995.
1: Absolutely. You don't
0: want her running for president in 2020. Well,
1: because it's about her now. Yeah. So if you're talking about her, I don't think she's as comfortable talking about herself and I don't think she's as comfortable having vision because I think she wants to please. She, I think she wants to be pleasing to people so she would try to hold two, two things at once. And the biggest thing was in the Medicare for All Bernie, Warren, absolutely. Sorry, motherfuckers. I don't care about private insurance. (laughs) Medicare for all. I got no problem saying it. Ask me another question. I'm going to say it the same way. Yeah. They don't care. They're not politicking with that. That's their vision. She was politicking with it. So when they said, well, would you get private insurance? Of course I would, because she was in front of an audience that cheered that. But then when she was asked again the very next day, she's like, well, I didn't quite say that. It's like, no, motherfucker, you did say that. Right. What are you talking about? You know, so people were confused. They didn't know. I was confused. I'm like, what does she believe in? Does does she really think that? Because to me, she seems more like a moderate. She seems like, you know, she's more in that Obama category of in that way. You know, she actually is closer to Obama, I think, ideologically than she is to Warren or, or Sanders. But Warren or Sanders are getting all the heat. So, you know, some of the moderates wanted to try to play over in there, but it didn't it didn't sit Don't you well. think
0: the worst thing that happened to her was she had that great moment with Biden in the first debate? Yes. It and was, it, it was like having a 40-point game in game one of a playoff series. And you're like, oh, yeah. I know. And it just—it wasn't realistic. It wasn't authentic. And then it was like all downhill from because there. Because it wasn't authentic. Because what are you really saying? Let's break it down,
1: but what are you really saying? Are you calling Joe Biden a racist? Because that's what the implication is, is right. that somehow either he has a racist blind spot— 45 years ago, which right. I don't know if that's relevant. You know, does he have one now? Well, black people know that he just served the first first black president. Yeah. So good luck convincing black people they should not like Joe Biden. So what are you saying exactly? We shouldn't trust him because of this bussing thing? Well, and what who are you presenting yourself as more authentic on this racial issue? The racial issue was so fuzzy. It was this thing and it was about busing, which was a position that she held, the exact same position that he held. So there wasn't an authenticity about that, you know. And Biden is not the enemy in that fight; Trump is the enemy in that fight, you know. Like she says that to Trump in a debate, that's a score, you know, but not to Biden. That
0: well, ironically, you know, what came out of that was the most interesting thing about her campaign was the Maya Rudolph impression of her at SNL, which right. then Harris immediately embraced. Yeah, it
1: and was it was too late like, by that point, though.
0: But if it was right. like. I don't really know what my identity is, but hey, Maya Rudolph, she's imitating me, and this is something, and, you know, and by that point, it was not going to happen. I always feel like with with presidential candidates, it's the same principle as movies or TV shows. Mm -hmm. If you can't explain it in one sentence, it's probably not going to work. Yeah, you're in trouble. You're right. It's like, explain insecure to me in one sentence.
1: Right. You want me to? Yeah. Insecure in one sentence. It's someone who doesn't know who they are or where they're going. That's what the story's about.
0: Kamala Harris it's like explain her entire reason for running in one sentence it's like uh, uh, ah she she doesn't think Trump should win I don't know how to do it plus I live in California I don't feel like this is the most well run state and I thought the Times story was so interesting because ultimately how you run your campaign is going to be at least a decent reflection on what your presidency is going to be like you're in charge of a bunch of people you have to execute a plan you have to be consistent you have to hire the right people and empower the right yeah. people. And her campaign was a mess, and she had her fucking it was sister. A mess. And her it, sister was running it.
1: But it was such a crowded field, too, Bill. And you have to do something. If you're going to jump over, basically, Biden is basically an incumbent. You know, so True. it's going to be tough for anybody to beat Biden, you know. So you have to have a really compelling reason. This is why Warren and Sanders have done the best because of their vision. Buttigieg is different because— He's just—his story, I think, is still the best story of everybody, you know? Well, he's also—he's resonating with people, he's, which He's resonating with people matters because he's authentic, yeah. you know? And he, he's not the perfect candidate, but he is authentic about it, you
0: know? And, well, uh, so that's a key point, and that was where I never got with Harris. Right. I think, and I think this is happening in all walks of life right now. Authenticity is the most important thing you can have, whoever you are, whether you're an entertainer, whether you're an athlete. Completely. um, We are so used to smoke and mirrors and how social media can be used to make somebody seem like something they're not and PR teams and all these things that authenticity resonates more than really it's ever has. Right. All, with of her, all of LeBron's criticisms
1: are based around authenticity, right? Totally. When he first went to Miami, because he didn't seem authentic in the way he did Cleveland. It seemed like he was full of shit the way that but he did But then has
0: it circled around the last two years where people feel like he's authentic? Because like, of how did he come back he to Cleveland? He does shop and he's talking about college athletes. And people are like, all right, that's cool. I'm glad he cares And when he came this. back
1: to Cleveland, remember he wrote that letter that was a brilliant letter.
0: We should point yeah. out LeBron has a media strategist. But so, he's but doing he's the right thing.
1: It. He's doing the right thing. Harris, you know.
0: Never felt authentic to me. Right. You know, and that, and I. And Biden just feels old. Yeah, Sanders but, is out to lunch. Right. And you just go down the line, and it's like, all right, Mayor Pete actually seems like a Biden, normal guy. O- Biden only has to
1: prove he won't fuck it up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like that's what he has to or prove. Or that he's not. And he's
1: having a tough time proving that right honestly now. Honestly, yeah. that he's not yeah. senile is yes. what he has to prove. Yes.
0: And the age thing and when Castro and went at him and everybody's like, whoa. And it's right. like, I actually thought that was pretty fair to bring up the fact that... Completely. All right, you're going to be in your mid-70s when you're the president. Yeah. Are you going to be confident enough? Absolutely fair.
1: Absolutely fair. You know, and the Castro thing actually is more authentic than the Harris thing, you know, because you're right about that, you know, but Castro... He just—he he wasn't
0: likable with how he did it. Yeah, it, and, it turned people off.
1: And he doesn't have vision or story. No, you know. So what do you have left? Not much. You're just gonna have to hope people like you, basically. You know. So it's, that's that's my answer on on Kamala Harris. I just feel like if she had a strong enough vision and stuck to it, I think because she didn't have that, there was no message that people really liked her from the beginning. So she had that. She had the likability factor, but she didn't have the vision thing to keep people
0: on her side. I think. There you go. The, the time story explained a lot. Yeah, it really did, and that made me think, like, oh man, now, this makes me worried for California. Well, most most campaigns, run a campaign.
1: but most campaigns are actually like that. It's the rare campaign that's run well.
0: You know what most campaigns are like? My sister's going to run everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all love our family. I don't know yeah. if I would want to put my I, political campaign in yeah. the hands of a family member. Yes, exactly. All right, next question, Christian Cooper. At Coop's age nice. said, what would the media reaction be if Michelle Obama, uh, Michelle Obama <laughs> ran in 2028? Uh,
1: well, 2028 is so far from now, you know. Um, anytime Michelle Obama would want to run for president, the media would go crazy. Everybody would go crazy. I think she's very likable, um, except by, <laughs> except by the right. I don't think she has any interest in running— for any kind of political position. I was in the very fortunate position of having dinner with her for the White House Correspondence Center. I sat next to her. We talked at length about a lot of things, actually. Um, To me, it was the more memorable thing than the performance, actually. You know, because how many chances do you get to do that? And I asked her this question, you know. And she said, absolutely not. Not any way is she interested in, in politics in any form, you know, or that type of thing. She does not like—I think, you know what it is? She's a very authentic person. I think there's too much inauthenticity or non-authenticity in, in politics in general, you know. So never going to happen. She's tall. Yeah, she's, the tall would help her being the world leader.
0: <laughs> yes. I Honestly, think that's Trump's we'd biggest asset. To,
1: we'd be lucky to have Michelle Obama. Trump's biggest right asset is he's mm. 6'4". At least he seems intimidating when he goes to meet these By the weird way, world leaders. when you talk about authenticity, I've always said this. Trump is authentic. He's Trump is a dick, and he's authentic about it. <laughs> it really is who Trump is. He's like, no, no, no. You guys know I'm a dick. I know I'm a dick. I'm never going to cover that
0: up. Jason Ickner, I hope I pronounced that right. Mm-hmm. He wants to know what types, what tips, advice do you have for Black creatives trying to break into the industry? Wow. That's um, a loaded question. Yes. I
1: would say now is probably a better time than any time to be doing that. You know, there's so many outlets. You know, my biggest piece of advice is be yourself on the page. If you're a writer, be yourself. You know, don't try to be somebody else. Just, it's okay to be unique and to be different. If you're good, somebody's gonna find that and you'll have a shot at it. But, you should be um, encouraged that now is a great time to be a black creative or any creative of color, somebody out there who's different because there's so many outlets now, and there's a lot more acceptance of different types of stories. So I would say be encouraged, be yourself.
0: Well, especially in, in Hollywood, like mm-hmm. the diversity that's happened yeah. with the writer's rooms and stuff has been great. But that's also, awesome. this is so stupid because we, you and I could have told these people this 20 years ago, but yeah. like, hey, guess what? It turns out like movies directed toward black audiences can be really successful. Exactly.
1: It doesn't have to
0: be like this fluke fucking thing on the side. It's like
1: Hollywood Hollywood's favorite color is green. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And all of a
0: sudden we have all these, you know, so many more movies out with diverse casts and Mm -hmm. and the reason they're they're happening is because guess what? Get out made a lot of money. Yeah, people want to see their stories, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's I don't know where they were for twenty years realizing this but yeah. at least we believe Don't get me started
1: here. Bill <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tom right. Denker wants to know tomorrow you wake up in your own life it's Uh-oh. July 2016 Ooh. how do you use your voice on the nightly show differently I'm not sure what that means I don't know either I think uh, he's blaming you He's blaming um, you for Trump. That's what I took. Blaming home. me for Trump? I think he's blaming your show. He felt, felt like I don't he could think have so. More.
1: People were mad that we didn't have a chance to really talk about this whole <laughs> yeah. Trump thing once he got elected and everything. I love the nightly show. I wish we still had that platform to do it. Well, I think
0: he's asking more if you know everything that was going to happen the I next predicted four it. years. I predicted could Trump. Could you have was, done anything differently?
1: I predicted it. I warned people ahead of time. I I actually, I don't need a time machine. In 2015, I said, this shit is happening, you guys. <laughs> and people were mad at me. They said, Larry, stop saying that. I'm like, it's going to happen. You're legitimizing <laughs> him. Yes, exactly. But I warned people back then. You could actually look it up where I predicted Trump was going to be president. I didn't like the prediction, by the way. I wasn't happy about it. I didn't vote for him. I just saw it coming.
0: Tom Danker also wants to know if you can cash in your blurred cred. Tom's getting a lot of... um, Well, these are good questions. What pop culture property would you get yourself a cameo or one scene speaking role in? My blurred cred. I Um, like that.
1: First thing would probably be anything Star Wars would be great. Oh,
0: like Mandalorian?
1: Oh, it'd be awesome. You're just
0: kind of wandering in the
1: (laughs) Mandalorian wilderness? Exactly. No matter what it is, (laughs) I'll take anything Star Wars. That would probably be number one. Everything would be in second place to that. Yeah. Really? Star Wars? Oh, completely. To be part of the Star Wars franchise, that would be fantastic. Um, of course, Avengers, you know, uh, something in that universe would be great um, in the Marvel universe. But um, Star Wars would be my top one just because of the the lineage of
0: Star Wars. Um, I'm adding a question that I don't see in the list. How deeply are you following the Epstein thing these last four months?
1: Um, the, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein
0: thing? Yeah, just the you mean whole since story. since he killed himself or just whatever? Just everything. Not that much. That I... whole, the whole Epstein conspiracy culture. Well, to me- That A, he's still alive. Yeah. B, oh, no, he was I didn't murdered. Know. <laughs> people think he's still alive? Oh, people think he's still alive. Oh, no, this, I, I didn't even know that, that. he was absolutely murdered. Mm-hmm. Um That it's all a giant cover up with all the rich elite. You don't follow any of that stuff?
1: No, but the last sentence- I don't necessarily disagree with, even though I'm not a big conspiracy theory person. You know, um, I believe that completely. There's probably people out there that don't want this story out there. I mean, look at Prince Andrew; how much he screwed up just talking about this thing that he actually, absolutely, blatantly was involved in. You that know? was,
0: I think, the funniest interview in a couple of years. It was amazing. It was almost as good as. What about when he R said Kelly. he didn't sweat?
1: It was it was almost as good as R. Kelly's uh, interview. Oh God! Uh, I wish Gail King had interviewed Prince Andrew in fact and had a uh, you know just have R. Kelly sitting there just reacting to it all it would have been great.
0: Apparently in England people lost their fucking minds about that interview. Oh right? yeah, like they just couldn't believe. Yeah, and they love so nothing
1: better than tearing down the royals.
0: You're not a you're not a conspiracy guy. No, because we talked about
1: the moon the last time. It. I still can't believe JFK assassination. I can't believe that you would hold open the possibility. Bill Simmons would hold open the possibility did, that the moon landing was fake. Didn't say I believe that. Open the possibility. I no, just but said that there's a glint that there's even a, a little a little light in any door of that that you would actually think that.
0: We did a rewatchables on The Shining, uh-huh. and Kubrick just puts all of these different. Uh-huh. moon landing stuff in there that's really strange <laughs> <laughs> the shiny the little kids wearing an Apollo 11 sweater oh, at some God, point as God. he goes yeah. into room 237 by the
1: way it's not moon landing I want people to be aware of it's moon landings it's plural we right. did it many times we True. didn't just do
0: it once so right. people
1: think this was faked it, it would have had to have been faked multiple times
0: what's your JFK assassination take? Um, how many shooters?
1: I believe that people can't accept the fact that someone as insignificant as Lee Harvey Oswald could shoot someone as important as John F. Kennedy. And so there's always been a need to fill that hole of insignificance versus significance. And it's tough for people to do. In any movie, the, in any thriller, the villain and the protagonist have equal powers. That's how you write a thriller. That's what makes a story compelling. Lee Harvey Oswald blows that theory right out of the water. And he he's so unimportant and so interesting that all these theories have to come up to make this more important in people's eyes to give it was such a wound for America, and for people to think that this nobody could just take away this beloved man it just doesn't suffice. But sometimes the world is messy like that and imperfect. That all makes
0: sense, but there was a second shooter. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> now the JFK assassination, on the other hand, is the one thing that I hold open the possibility that. Somebody could have been in that grassy you knoll, but I disavow any theories that it was the CIA or that it was. Uh, I think it was the mafia. Well, it's possible, but still, it's it's still hard to keep secrets like that. They doctored the
0: Spruuta film.
1: No, they no one doctored the They completely changed
0: the autopsy. They nope. completely no one changed the autopsy. All they had the Spruuta film for like eighteen months, and no, then there's like frames no, missing. No, no, yeah. No, no, they did. No. We should start. We Who's should launch. They? We should launch Who's a spin-off they? podcast where we argue about conspiracies. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'll do it anytime. That'd be amazing.
0: I, I've always said. Do you it, believe? Rissela was telling me there's some book about Roosevelt getting assassinated. No, he was not assassinated. Well, that—that's a whole theory now. No, he was old. Somebody he, assassinated the him. The man was
1: infirm for 25 know. years. This will, this
0: will be all part of our new podcast. Oh, god. Yeah, you're just okay. not a conspiracy guy. Some people just aren't. Because it's not true. I'm a truth guy. Well, this,
1: not a truth. JFK definitely got shot guy. by a second person. you say definitely. His There's head no evidence. Goes,
0: his head goes back and to the left. Yeah. But Oswald was to his right. It, it makes no sense. I've the seen, physics don't I've add up. I've seen
1: the Zapruder film. Yeah.
0: This is like the the OJ, the people who think, nah, OJ wasn't there. It's like OJ's blood was there. I he have, had to have been there.
1: I have seen rifle tests that have done that same thing uh, to make it go back into the left like that. Really? On, on specials about the JFK. You're talking to somebody who's watched almost every special about this. Read, I have to. Read almost every book about it, you know, and was you know what really. The best into one? By the way, and the Oliver Stone film is so confused people and got I know. people just thinking the wildest things. It's the most irresponsible film on the JFK assassination. Yeah, but th- this ever.
0: happens all the time with movies because I just watched Richard yeah. Jewell last night. Yeah. And the John Hamm character is like not a real character. It's a yeah. composite. Why do they make these Why things? Why do they do up? this? And then people right. watch Richard Jewell and they think, I like, know. man, that John Hamm guy was such yeah. a dick. It's like, that's not a real character. People think
1: 9 11 was a conspiracy. What am I supposed to do with that, Bill? What am I supposed to do? That's a tough one. But well, they think the
0: buildings were imploded think, from within.
1: People think that somehow. Maybe they told people not to show up for a couple of days because we got to put explosives in this building that we're going to blow up in a few years. And we want to make sure nobody knows this. So just don't show up for a couple of days. Because, you know, if you're going to put explosives in a building, someone's probably going to see you doing that. Right. (laughs) You know, if you're going to rig the the World Trade Center Because people like were that. voting that day and, a
0: lot of people were late to work and
1: who's blocks away you know with the with the detonator you know doing this making it explode okay thank god the, the airplane hit the building today we can finally blow this building up the it biggest one for sense. their
0: case is the guy bought new insurance on all the buildings like two oh, months before god, it's so bad but that's like if you google that guy's name I forget the guy's name who owns all that property it just it's like all 9-11 conspiracy with them because he bought insurance.
1: My theory about conspiracy theorists is they um they demand evidence for the obvious but expect you to swallow the preposterous. That's what conspiracy theorists do. Yeah.
0: There you go. I still enjoy them. Who is the one guest Alan Gilbert wants to know you would like to have on yeah. the podcast that would freak out your fans? Hmm. That would freak out my fans. What is it? Is freak out a good thing or a bad thing? Alan didn't elaborate.
1: Uh, it would probably be Trump, right? That would freak people out, right? That would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say he's not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, it would never happen, but if you ask me who would be the one person that would freak everybody out, it would probably be Trump. I, I can't would think say, of anybody else.
0: I would say a realistic guest,
1: uh-huh. OJ. That would freak people out. But that would freak me out, too. That would be weird. That would be incredible. Yeah. Can we invite that would OJ be, huh? You think that would be incredible? Yeah. No, we're not. Gonna like. Invite, we're not going to invite OJ on. That's, why
0: he killed his? He brutally killed his. Talk wife. Talk to him about it. No, I don't like, want to talk. Why are you on Twitter? Do you can do all these questions with him. Like, why would why I are you try to, to pretend you're a figure? Wanna, you're a murderer. What
1: do I want to know about that? I Honestly. would. I would listen to your OJ interview. I wouldn't. I would have nothing to say to OJ Simpson. And you're talking to a guy who idolized OJ Simpson when he was running back. But to me, and here's the thing: to me, it started when he was abusing his wife. When you look at those pictures. This is way before the. Yeah, I've I was done then. Oh okay? wow! So now when you have this incident, just makes it more done. You know, I have so, nothing to say to OJ.
0: So how far would we have to go? Before, I can talk to the
1: seventies, OJ. Seventies. No, with guests like before, you're like
0: I'm out. Like R. I, R. Kelly, I have nothing
1: to say to Cosby. R. Kelly. Um, I'm just not interested in R. Kelly.
0: Cosby, no. No, absolutely I, not. I'm. Cosby, it feels like he's dead, but he's not even dead yet. He's dying in jail, but he's not dead. It's because
1: nobody cares.
0: Did you see The Irishman? Yes. Think it was too long?
1: Hour too long. That was my take as well. The yeah. film nerds are like... No. It's film his best Duron move since one. Raging Bull. Film nerds Film nerds are wrong. I actually have a critique about Scorsese that I'm not happy with. Okay. Because he's a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. And it's nothing about his brilliance. But I think Scorsese does not allow you to empathize with his protagonists. He's not interested in that. Um, so you are always watching a horror show. So if the horror show is too long, you, you know, <laughs> you, you can always stay connected to that so long because you can't empathize with your protagonist. Uh, taxi driver, no way you can empathize with that protagonist. You're just watching him. You know, you're, you're distant from a raging bull. Same thing. You know, you're just watching this guy. Goodfellas was the closest that you can empathize with him. But by the last act of that, you're done. You know, he's just so fucked up, you know, Howard Hughes, whoever it is, pick any of his protagonists. Good luck having any empathy with that character. He he doesn't want you to.
0: He loves that balance between good and evil and making whoever's watching the movie go, I shouldn't be rooting for this guy, but somehow I am, which eventually became Prestige TV, but he was in on it early. Yes. And the Irishman is like, if you're going to make the case for it and why it has to be too long, which I don't agree with, but the last... 40 minutes of the movie is kind of like the reckoning of yeah. that kind of whole argument, which I get. Yeah. He is also—there was a really good piece on Vox. I forget the writer, but it was excellent about uh, Scorsese's relationship with God in mm-hmm. his different movies and how this movie is yeah. kind of the last piece of that. Sure. And it's a theme that pops up in just about everything he does. It was good. Yeah.
1: It, that is interesting. Very Catholic, <laughs> that sort of thing at the end, that reckoning.
0: hoovy comedy— wants to know what's the biggest lesson you've learned about writing that you wish someone had told you when you started Mm.
1: i have an answer for this as well oh go you go first and i'll think of mine
0: here's the thing you got to do it every day it's like golf Mm -hmm. and you just have to force yourself to do it and get in the habit of doing it Mm -hmm. the same way like tiger woods or sergio garcia or Mm -hmm. or um my dude, Brooks Koepka, my favorite golfer. Yes, that's um, funny Brooks Koepka. Those guys have to play golf every day. They're yeah. not. They're not like I'm not going to play golf for three weeks, but then I'll I'll be in the Masters. Yeah, like they just do it. They do it. They work on it. They work on it. They do it. They do it. It's yeah. just part of their everyday life. Yeah. And when I was at my best as a writer back when my fingers worked, it was always when I was writing all the time. Yeah. Because then you have to break the hump in your head of like. I am now sitting down on my computer, and there's a blank screen, and I'm scared, and what's going to come out? That whole part of the process, if you're doing it every day, you're not thinking. You're like, oh, it's time for me to write, and it's like eating or going to the bathroom or driving a car or anything. Mm -hmm. Once you remove that, it gets easier.
1: It's brilliant. Thank you. completely agree. I think uh, skill is an underrated asset, and talent is overrated when it comes to writing. I think – and by skill, you have to have mastery of your craft. And that's why you have to – that's why repetition is important. That's why working on shows is more important than – most people, when they break into the business, they always want to create a show. And they know nothing about how you actually produce a show, how, how you write a show. And part of how you write a show is how you rewrite a show. Yeah. You know, rewriting, way more important. That eighth draft, so important, <laughs> you know. What you and, take
0: out is actually more important than so
1: important. what you're typing. Editing so important. And many writers who are beginning are only interested in their initial idea on something. They, they put too much emphasis on that creative burst of, which I'll call talent right now, which is important. But in the long run, you have to know how to develop that. You know, and you develop that through rewriting and shaping and editing and the experience of killing something that you like because it doesn't fit the story. You know, so you have to take your ego out of it. Most important thing, take your ego out of it. I always say write your first draft with your heart, all other drafts with your head. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, that's why I say this. I'm going to sound conceited, but it's just true. Sound. I'm good at producing documentaries and helping people make the documentary better. Right. And the reason I'm good at it is because the process is very similar to writing. Right. The hardest thing I had to learn over the years, and my comms were always still too long even by the end, but— Knowing what to take out was something that took me a long time to be like, I really like this joke or I really like this paragraph. But it actually ruins the flow of where I'm trying to get to. I'm going to take that out. And when you take it out and you experiment with it, and you'd be like, I want to look at this without that paragraph or I want Mm -hmm. to look at that without this section is the piece better. And then you reread it and you're like, Ah, shit, it is better. Right. I hate losing this. And it's yes, like the documentary term is you got to kill your babies, which yeah, is a exactly. terrible thing to say, but that's what yeah, everybody says. It too, yeah. And it's the hardest thing to get through documentaries is like yeah. you want it to be the right length. You don't want to pat it and be like, oh, I really like that but, part. We went we went it, to Spain to film that part. Yeah. I don't want to lose it. I love the way the light looks. And it's like, did this advance what were you, the story you're trying to tell or not? Get rid of it. And if it doesn't, take it out.
1: It's kind of why special features were invented, you know, right? Because so people's egos could be assuaged. Look,
0: this is the other thing that I did, you know? Right, you and know. this is the biggest problem right now. My biggest with problem the streaming with Star services. Wars, by the way,
1: of when Lucas went back. This is me being the blurt again. When he went back and put the Jabba scene, when they're about to get in the Millennium Falcon, where Jabba didn't belong in the original Star Wars, and because he claimed he didn't have the um, the digital wherewithal to do it, the technology. But no, Lucas. That was repetitive storytelling. We already heard that part of the story in the bar. Now you're right. repeating that story. Now it's dragging. You were right the first time. You cut that for good reasons. Don't put that in there right. Why for vanity that? reasons because you said you wanted to do it. Your instincts were correct when you were younger, you know, and you did that.
0: Well, so, unfortunately, I think we're hitting this time now creatively, especially with movies and yeah. TV shows and stuff like that where padding is being rewarded. You I make know. more money for it.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel about the Irishman.
0: Yeah, unfortunately,
1: and I say that with all respect to Mr. Scorsese, who is a brilliant director. I just feel, for me personally, I don't know, it just seemed too long.
0: I'm looking at right. right, This is the last thing, and then we'll finish. Okay, I'm looking at the odds for the U.S. president. Who's ahead? Trump. Trump was even for a while. Yeah. And now he's minus 140. Who do you- <laughs> Which means you have to bet $140 to win 100 That's hilarious. So he is a favorite. Who do you think
1: is going to be president?
0: Well, I'm going to give you the rest of these. Joe Biden is 5 to 1.
1: Oh.
0: Our boy Mayor Pete, Mr. Authenticity, uh-huh. he is now 7 to 1. He's third. Uh-huh. Bernie's 15 to 1. I advise people not to bet on that one. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Warren is 15 to 1. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Bloomberg is twenty to one. Yeah, he's trying to buy his way in right now. Yang Gang is thirty to one. Yang Gang's got a lot of support out there. A lot of people. People like, like Yang, Yang, Yang Gang. Yeah, I'm not mad at Yang. Like <laughs> Hillary is fifty to one. Hillary's not going to run. This is my favorite. This is mm-hmm. the bet I would advise. Mike Pence sixty to one. Oh, I love that. That's great that you now you're bringing in like Some impeachment, are betting on something heart different there. Yeah. yeah like like just trump leaves yeah. and pence takes over and right. he's our next president or trump
1: takes his ball and exits the field right 61 <laughs> and i don't uh, want to
0: do this anymore and mm. amy 75 to 1
1: i like amy Klobuchar. i like her a lot you know she she's has,
0: kind of the one that if you if you just re, if you took this like a snow globe and you just shook the election and yeah. just started over yeah i wonder if she would do better
1: well, because
0: she's another one who actually seems authentic. I don't like the Al Franken stuff, but yeah, I think she seems relatively authentic compared to these other people. She
1: is authentic, but she's not the best teller of her own story, unfortunately. Right? Because it's politics, you kind of have to have that skill. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's kind of she's essential. She's in the unfortunate position of not being the best.
0: Uh, it's like co- a Michael Dukakis thing. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, but I think she's competent. I think she's so experienced. I think she's great, but I don't think she's going to get the nomination. But you never know. She could be someone's vice president. By the way, Kamala Harris, people have said, Do you think she could be an AG or something? I think she'd be a great AG. I think that's a great position for her to be in. Vice president, who knows? You never know in a political race. But yeah, if you're telling me, Do I think she'd be a great AG? I think absolutely. All right, last one. Do we have one more?
0: No, that was it. We ended it? on that one. We're good. That right, was ma'am. great. I really enjoyed myself. Bill Simmons. Thanks for having me on. Thank We're going to so start much. our conspiracy I, podcast. I'm
1: serious about this. Let's just start a conspiracy podcast and. Well, I will expose how ridiculous your opinions are in some of these things. Every
0: podcast but, ends with you just going, yeah. <laughs> "Get the fuck out of here!" Then, <laughs> we're brought to you by ZipRecruiter.
1: We we actually have talked about this. For me to just have people on with these wild conspiracies, and I'm just poking holes in them the whole time. Can we
0: call, "Get the fuck out of here"? Let's with do with Larry Wilbur.
1: Can we just do one as an experiment?
0: There's this whole. Oh, I like shot. that. Get the fuck out of here. Well, in books now, yeah. if you know, if you go to a bookstore, yeah. yeah. Fuck is in a lot of titles and yeah, they asterisk right, right. it. Yes. So it'll always be like, right. You know, my husband's driving me fucking crazy sure. by so and so. But sure. they really it feels like a marketing thing almost. Maybe we should it yeah, in the pot. I think we should. Get Let's, the fuck out of here, Larry Wilmers. It,
1: it could be just a special <laughs> <the> one. <laughs> special. Six episode series. Bring, a conspiracy. On. Bring it on. Yeah. All right, thanks for You could be the conspiracy slayer. Yes, exactly. Good luck to your Celtics, not really. Thank you.
0: I don't All know. Right. I but worst <laughs> luck to your Lakers. Thank you. Okay. All right, coming up, Pete Harrington.
1: Okay, welcome back. Okay, this is a very special treat for me, guys. A real influence on my life and career and a really dear friend who I wanted to have a conversation with him, a public conversation, because for a number of reasons. First of all, he's one of the most interesting guys that I know. Second of all, he has an amazing story that I wanted to share with you guys. And third of all, I just think people should know who he is. I just think he's a great guy. And I don't know if he's ever gotten the credit he deserves. Before I want to start, I just want to say thanks, Pete. Pete was one of those people. It's Pete Aronson, everybody. Welcome to Black on the Air, Pete. Thanks, Larry. But Pete, let me just start off. Before we get into your story, I want to thank you personally. And this is going to embarrass you a little bit. Oh, great. <laughs> Pete was kind of, he was one of those people who I would call, sometimes you're lucky enough if you get like an angel in the business, somebody who's who kind of sees you. And kind of kind of says, Oh, I see who you are, you know. And they're in a position to do something or to mentor you or or at least to give you a pat on the back. And I was fortunate that Pete was one of those people for me. He gave me, he recognized in me something that I wasn't sure I had in the beginning. and said, You're a funny motherfucker, <laughs> you know, back <laughs> in the day. And it really meant a lot, you know, to have that. So thank you, Pete. You you were so instrumental. You know, at that point in my career, it really made a difference. So I just want to give you props, my brother. Thanks, man. Yeah. You did it. I just watched you do it. No, but you you're awesome though. But uh but anyhow, but a lot of that came out of uh an instant affection and love, you know, and a friendship and that sort of thing, which is by the way, that happens in showbiz, you know, where you meet people who you just instantly you just are drawn to yep. and you and you clicked and it's and it's interesting. So Pete Aronson has been an executive, he's been a writer. Uh, he's he's been a mentor. He's been many things in this business. He's worked with with you can name almost any famous person. He has he's six degrees of separation from everybody. Probably two degrees of separation. Uh, I remember. I think when I met you, you may have been a Whit Thomas back in those days. Yeah, possibly. And I, w-
2: I would say to your incredibly nice uh, introduction yes. that it was driven by your material. Uh, well, thank Mark you. Wax sent me your stuff. Mark Wax, my you first were, agent. You were you mm-hmm. were. Uh, writing on In Living Color. And I can't remember if it was a narrative script or a packet of Mm -hmm. sketches, but I read them. I thought they were great. And at the same time that you guys were shooting that, I think on a lot that's not there, KTTV, it's it's gone. gone. Uh, We were shooting Blossom on that same lot. Uh, And I went over to say hi to Steve Tompkins. Tompkins. It was either Steve Tompkins or Les Firestein, but I went to say hi to one of them, and they introduced me to you. Yeah, And that's how I met you.
1: Yeah, so it was really that simple, you know. But this, uh, it's from reading –
2: it was literally from reading – there is no better feeling as an exact – It was sketchist, I think. It, and, and, yeah. and you know this as a writer right. staffing your shows. Yes. When you close a script of someone new who right. nobody knows about yet and you think you're the first yes. motherfucker to find this person. Yes, It's yes. the great – it's like dis, I discovered it, a, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> like nobody knows <laughs> Marvin Gaye and I found Marvin I Gaye. I love that. Like nobody it's, knows. It's such it's a It's the gr- best
1: feeling. I agree. And it's one of the reasons why people – Ask me why I like to mentor people and and uh work with young people because I love that feeling too. It's the best. Yes. It's fantastic. You
2: see it in all the you see it in all the music docs. You never yeah. see it portrayed in what we do. Yes. That's but, true. Yeah. But in like the Clarence Avant documentary yeah, or in the yeah. the uh one with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, sure. that which was the Defiant ones, which is yes. was-
0: that's my favorite piece one, of TV. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Two guys from completely disparate worlds come together yeah. and change the game. Very unlikely. But in, yeah. both, in all those things, and even in uh, Fade to Black, the Jay-Z movie, the la- the concert film that sure. he made where you see him in the studio
1: sure. in between segments with, right. working
2: with Kanye, Farrell and all and those
1: how, guys. how brilliant. You could tell his brilliance. The thing. discovery yes. moment. Yes, exactly. Of he
2: hears that beat. Exactly. And all of the, he like, and it's, he's like oh. it's, it's the dirt off your shoulders. Dude. Yes, exactly. And he hears it and you just see him. You and see his he face. Starts, he starts yes. doing the words The excitement himself. of it, yeah. The excitement of that discovery. That's right. when I, you know, literally I read your script. You're the sketches. I shot the thing. I was like, okay, I got to meet okay. this dude.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. How do I meet this dude? It's so very nice of him, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. Maybe in Seinfeld's back, I think I wrote that. Who knows? You know, there. Are, you, it's hard to remember those days sometimes. I know. I remember you, you were working man.
2: on and living color. Yeah. That much I
1: remember. Right. And those were heady days, you know. Um, a lot was... It the show was show's so, a
2: giant hit, man.
1: I know. People, It's hard to relate to how big... No, because was nothing gets now. in the zeitgeist like that anymore. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, especially a sketch show. Especially yeah. a sketch show. Right. And at that time... Hip-hop was just coming into the zeitgeist, you know. Of course it had been around, but it wasn't part of the— of the. Um, it wasn't on Fox. I'll, the, I'll put it that po- way. Of the popular zeitgeist. Well, that's true. It was not Prior on Fox. Prior to that show, it was not on it Fox. It was not on Fox. Now, the one penetration that it had in the culture was Arsenio at that time. Yeah. Arsenio was on the air, and he was the only person in the mainstream media— who was bringing like acts on television yep. and that type of stuff? And of course, he didn't have
2: heavy D do his main title. Yeah. But I take your <laughs> no, point. That's true. <laughs> I take that's your true. point. His,
1: his show was actually kind of traditional, but it had the, Arsenio. It in. had a white band leader. Yes, yes, right. Yeah. But so when Keenan came on with the Fly Girls and everything, yeah. and living color, that was huge, you know. And uh, and it's funny because hip hop has played a major role, I think, in your life and and career and. And, absolutely, and uh, well, absolutely. Let's talk about where you where you started from. So, uh, you come from actually a, a pretty rich family or a privileged, yeah, family, or yeah. How would you describe it? Uh, um, it was on your mother's side. You know, I right? was
2: um, primarily on my mom's side, right. uh, uh, But my dad's family, you know, has been here a long time and, and right. was successful, and you know, all went to Ivy League
1: schools and that sort right. of thing.
2: But uh, yeah, on my mom's side. You know, behind every great fortune is a crime, and I'm sure there's a crime there somewhere.
1: (laughs) Was it her father or grandfather? It was my
2: mom's grandfather who Uh uh, was one of the founders of the American Stock Exchange but made his killing on Wall Street, and this is before there was income tax. Yes. So he kept it all. Um, Like, uh, can
1: can you – do you have a sense of what the scale of it was back then? Yeah. I mean, uh,
2: you know, he had $80 million when $80 million meant something. Now that's some guy in New Jersey who sold his paint company. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. But back then, it made him one of the richest people in New York. And he was, you know, he was a major. Is this
1: the beginning of the 20th century? He founded his own firm in
2: 1901.
1: 1901. And his killing,
2: what I was going to say was, you know, everyone in their career has some giant score. Yeah. And, you know, that either sets them down the road towards being Sean carter or yes you know uh, so he made money in music but the real money was in rock and, wear <laughs> and the booze and all that sure, stuff so sure. <laughs> he, but the initial killing was uh my great-grandfather basically took standard oil public ah. so when they broke up the standard oil trust in 1911 mm-hmm. which was the which is, the only oil company in america basically it was a monopoly owned by john d rockefeller right the government broke it up they a lot bust, of that
1: came out of all the teddy roosevelt antitrust correct stuff. teddy yeah. was
2: the trust buster right. so they they broke it up and when they did they created all these new oil companies. Sure. It was like when they broke up AT&T originally right. and it became all these other phone companies. Yes. So he issued and underwrote the first stock in the company's Soconi vacuum, which was mobile. Uh-huh. So mobile, Exxon, uh, Sunoco, Conoco. Oh, wow. He basically took all those issues on to Wall Street and sold the stock and held huge positions in uh-huh. all those stocks. So that's basically how they made all their money. right? And uh, – that company was then passed on to my grandfather, and now my uncle runs it. It's still a right. business, so it's still family business. Oh yeah, it right. basically runs the
1: family money. It, it's a family office that right. runs money. Now, so when and and your father, so that's where your your, your mother side, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And your father, what what was his lineage? If if you, were, you
2: so, know. my dad's grandfather uh, owned some shoe stores in Boston, <laughs> and my dad's dad went to shoe stores, went to so. Boston Latin, and then to Harvard, and uh-huh. then. Uh, was a sort of financial guy and a controller, got an MBA, was in the first graduating class from the Harvard Business School, I think, in like 1919 mm-hmm. 19 or 1920, something like that. You're a grandfather. That's my dad's dad. Okay. So he went to Harvard in the Harvard Business School, got and it. then he went to work sort of as a CFO controller mm-hmm. uh, for a number of different companies, uh, one of them which became Kraft, the mm-hmm. dairy company. Right. Um, yes. And, uh, and he, you know, uh, uh, got married, moved to New York, and uh, had my dad and yeah. my uncle.
1: And your dad had an interesting journey. Didn't he, he – uh, He did he kind of rebel against uh, any of that? Yeah, and I don't uh-huh. know
2: exactly why mm-hmm. uh, or what happened or what sort of rift there was. Yeah. But my dad, uh, you know, was basically not present in our lives and in our family. We didn't mm-hmm. see him much. He was on the road probably, I'd say, you know, 300 days a year.
1: We really didn't see him. Did he join the military as a young man? Yes, and uh,
2: – he, at the age of 15, 15. all of this came out. When basically, he wasn't really in our lives. Uh-huh. The only thing I have really in common with my dad uh, or w- at that point was sailing. So every summer, my parents have a house in Maine. We'd go uh-huh. sailing. My dad got sick. He got cancer. Uh, he'd been through one round of chemo, and uh, he had to go through another.
1: And now, you're talking about later in his life.
2: This is when he's in his 70s. Okay. And I'm just telling you how I found out what
1: Okay. The thing I, about like, him going yes, into the I military. Wanna- Yes. Okay, Okay. great. You found out later that he was in the military. You didn't In
2: his know. mid-70s, he got cancer, and the only thing we had in common was sailing, so we were on a sailing trip, and he turned to me apropos of nothing after going through chemo. I think he thought he was going to die. He doesn't in the end of the story. He's still alive. Uh, he turned to me and he said, did I ever tell you I did 21 years in the CIA? And I said, no, you left that out. Uh-huh. But the minute he said it, everything made sense, including why we never saw him.
1: So, as so, part of
2: that same conversation, uh-huh. a number of things came out about him that I did not know, including the fact that my mother's family did not want him to marry my mother because at the age of 15, uh-huh. he had bought a fake baptismal certificate, which was all you needed to join the Marine Corps. Uh-huh. Signed up at the Marines, got shipped out. He's, again, he's 15. He's a sophomore in high school. He runs right. away from home, joins the Marines, gets shipped out to Korea, fights at the Chosin Reservoir. He's one of the Chosin few who survived. Uh, he gets blown up as part of a two-man mortar team. At 15? He's 15 years old, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the closest thing is the the Spielberg show, The Pacific. That's the best yeah. way to see what he kind of went through. Sure. Uh, he gets blown up. His partner... Uh, Gets killed in the the mortar team and my dad takes shrapnel and the Chinese communists used to dip the grenades in poison so that Mm. when it fragged, it would give you blood poisoning, which my dad got. He ends up in the hospital in Seoul and Mm. the missing persons report filed by his parents shows up. He gets thrown out of the Marines for being an underage Marine. Mm-hmm. He goes back to high school, finishes high school, goes to Harvard, Jesus graduates, Christ. then goes back in the Marines for the second time. Did his parents? But this time under his real name.
1: But his parents, did, did they know he joined the Marines? No, they just knew he disappeared. So he was like a missing person during this time? Mm-hmm. And so then he got. He, kept- f-
2: he was under a fake name. He used the name Eddie D'Angelo because his. Eddie
1: D'Angelo? His, his, my dad's initials are This were is like EDA. a
2: Scorsese movie, <laughs> Well, that's the baptismal certificate he bought, said Eddie D'Angelo. Wow. But my dad's initials are EDA, so it fit.
1: So he comes home, he, he
2: almost dies. He almost dies, yeah. Right. Yeah. I've seen, he got a purple heart. I've seen that he has a, he, to this day, he has a uh, giant like uh, birthmark blotch on his shin where the shrapnel right.
1: went in. So he comes home and he joins again at what age? He graduated from Harvard in late 50s.
2: He, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was 21 when he went back in yeah, uh-huh. after he graduated.
1: And when did he marry your mother?
2: Uh, he told my mother, if I make it through officer, officer candidate school, I'll marry you. Uh-huh. And so. And so they got married. They got married, uh, one year out of they were
1: after, out of college. So when you were growing up, did you think your dad was in the military and you just didn't he see him He was, more?
2: he stayed in the reserves under his real name. Right. Uh, all the way until he was in his forties when we mm-hmm. lived in London. Right. Um, I did not think he was in the military. I knew he did military duty. He had all those uniforms and everything. So why did
1: you think you weren't seeing your dad a lot?
2: Uh, He was an investment banker. He ran the international division. He started and ran the international division of a very large investment bank in New York. So we moved to London as his Uh headquarters when I was four. Right, And then from London, he opened the Hong Kong,
1: Tokyo, and a couple other offices for the bank. And these are things he actually really did, Yeah, this was his job. Okay. But— He was missing a lot while he was doing this, and you figured, well, he's just, I guess, doing. He would put these. He would put these Uh
2: itineraries on the fridge in Uh the kitchen, Larry, when he would leave, and they were the most insane flight itineraries.
1: (laughs) Okay, so he would go (laughs) uh, uh,
2: London to New York to meet at the head office of the bank in New York, then New York, San Francisco, San Francisco, Tokyo, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Singapore, Singapore, Rome, Rome, Paris, Paris, Madrid, Madrid, London.
1: And so as a kid, you guys would just kind of follow him? like Yeah,
2: you would just—he'd have it—it it was all in military time, like 1,800 hours, yeah. GMT, flight from Singapore to, you know, Manila, to Manila, right. Philippines, blah,
1: blah, blah. It would
2: all be on an itinerary yeah. on the fridge, his business trips.
1: And did you have a—what did it feel like in terms of your parents? Like, when you looked at your parents, did it seem like they were together, or were they—did they fight a lot? Did it seem like they— we're just like in this type of situation, and that's just what it was. Or? Well, first of all, like, it was it like, was
2: compartmentalized. My mother didn't know
1: okay anything that my father was doing unrelated to his banking. Right. Business. So she just thought he's this—he's a businessman. He's, he's a he's a, a businessman doing a lot of business. Her whole family is bankers. Right. Her grandfather right.
2: started the American Stock Exchange.
1: Like right. she knows what that Makes looks sense. like. Right. Makes
2: sense. He's an international investment right.
1: banker. Right. And. Uh, So your mom also had no idea about any of this, right? About his secret life. zero. Okay. So let's, so, so Pete Aronson, you went through your whole life having a very confusing, I'm going to use the word confusing, confusing relationship with your dad, meaning it wasn't the relationship you certainly wanted. It was problematic in many ways. He was missing your life a lot. You know, I'm sure probably you may have been angry about it or confused or whatever it is, you know, as any child is not, you know. Not knowing what the fuck or whatever. Yeah. And here he is in his 70s, and he comes to you mm-hmm. thinking he's going to die. Yeah. Okay, now tell me about—let's go back to that conversation. So he says, do you, I have something to tell you, right? And what goes— Nope. Th- oh, he didn't say we were, like that. Were
2: standing on, we were standing on the deck of his boat in Rogue's Roost, which is uh, a Roost. harbor in Canada, because uh, uh-huh. we would sail up to Nova Scotia in the summer from their house in Maine. And right. we were standing on the deck of his boat, and I'm having a cigar and an after-dinner uh-huh. drink. He is in the middle of uh, chemo, so he's having a uh, Orangina, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and. Uh uh, we're talking about something and and I think something to, relating to my childhood in London and uh-huh. he just – he, I said it was apropos of nothing that he turned to me and said it. Mm-hmm. And then all that other shit about I was 15, yeah. I ran away from home, Came that's why your thin. mother's family didn't want wow. me to marry into that family mm-hmm. because they were – they had money and they thought, yeah. you know, this guy's a nut. He's – basically my dad was a felon because he had used a fake name sure. to join the Marine Corps.
1: yeah. It was Um, a scandal that she married him. Yeah, it kind of was. Yeah, It kind of was. In those days. In the mad days. His saving
2: graces were Harvard. You know, he ended up going to the Harvard Business School. His dad went to Harvard and the Harvard Business School, which made my mom's family feel somewhat comfortable. But this guy (laughs) was still a wild card. I mean, you know, even when he went in the Marines, he became a fighter pilot. Mm -hmm. He has 200 hops off USS Ranger. Crazy. You know, like, even then they were like, what is with this guy?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, not your
2: average nice Jewish boy, (laughs) uh,
1: from New York city. Right. You know? Um, so he tells you this. So what, so what exactly does he tell you with, you know, with, with the things that you can He said, I did,
2: he said, I did 21 years in the CIA, seven consecutive three-year contracts as a non-official cover agent. Wow. So there's three ways to be in the CIA. The first way is you work for the CIA, you have a business card that says CIA, you probably have an office in Langley, okay. Virginia. That's an up and up. The second way is what's called official cover. You work in the CIA, but you work in the State Department, you okay. work in the Agriculture Department, you mm. work in the Department of Energy, but you're you work for the CIA. Right. But if something goes wrong, you have what's called official cover. You work for the U.S. government. Okay, got it. The last way to work with the CIA is what's called NOC, non-official cover. They don't know you. They deny knowing you. Wow. They never met you. If something goes sideways, you're on your own.
1: Yeah, you're fucked. That's what my dad did. So with that kind of life, he also – he can't even tell his spouse what he does, right? You're allowed to now. You couldn't back then. In those days, you couldn't. My because, dad was in – my dad went in 62 until 83. And that's because it might compromise you or that type of thing or or, or compromise them or whatever. Well, they
2: could be used against you they in some sort of blackmail situation. But you. Right. also,
1: uh, you know, loose lips sink ships. and right. Once
2: two people know, two people know.
1: So – Here's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So that type of lifestyle, no matter how you put it, is really a lifestyle of lies, right?
2: Yes, which yeah. you bring up an interesting point because yeah. I ultimately said to my father, yeah. why did you leave yeah. the agency? And he said, it tears you up inside. Wow. You're lying all the time. Yes. and Which is funny because my dad, my mom used to say about him, he's such a— he has such a sense of moral rectitude uh-huh. that he wouldn't know how to cut a corner if you gave him the scissors
1: and showed him the line. <laughs> yes. Ironically, he was lying the entire time. Right. And yet he's lying because he's trying to do something good.
0: Or, I, you or know, quote unquote.
2: There are many. I think there. Right. Are ma- this is pure. Let's let's give it some contextualization okay. in where the country was. Good. This is pure cold warrior. Right. Let's kill Russians yeah attitude right. okay, so my parents, I also, when you said what was it like to be around that, these are two Eisenhower era rich white people, yeah ivy League educated, my mom and my dad. you should have kids. Yeah. I don't think they wanted kids, I don't think they particularly liked kids, yeah. why they saw the need to have four of them. I have yeah. no idea, <laughs> right, but that's what you did back then, yeah and you came from the right families and you knew the right people and you belong to the right clubs and you're going to have kids. Mm-hmm. So th- that's why I think they ended up with kids in the first place. Right. Also, I think, you know, neither one of them was by the time, you know, I was the fourth one by a long shot. My brother's nine years mm-hmm. older than I am. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time they got to me, they were a little tired of it. Mm-hmm. And there were some hijinks in there from various kids. And it was sort of like, you know, yeah, it, 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 children should be seen
1: and not heard. Yeah. Was sort of the vibe. And, and, uh, so also by the time you're – so when your father tells you this, what happens in your mind? Do you start to reassess your whole life?
2: I, I didn't reassess my whole life, but my dad's life made sense to me in an mm-hmm. instant.
1: Yeah.
2: And, you know, the, I saw him – I always saw him as a patriot because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't stay in the military that long unless you love your country and you really believe in service.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I later found out why he actually stayed in the military that long, which was his pension. Hmm. And I said what do you mean? Practical and reasonable. he said non-official cover you don't get a pension. They yeah. deny you even exist. Right. So I figured I've already got 6 years in the Marines, not counting the fake part in Korea. Yeah. Cuz that wasn't under his real name. But he had already been in the Marines 6 years, so he said I'll just keep going. And he, you know, he mustered out as a major. He was a major when he left in 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he has a real pension from the Marine Corps.
1: Uh, Cuz otherwise his service doesn't exist. Well, his CIA service does not exist. Right. And did he have any um any conclusions about that life for him and what it, what it did to him or anything? Did he share anything with that? Or did, not that you have to share the, he, well, some of the details. Did he the, share any of the dark things that happened? Here's I, – I would say
2: the biggest issue is, uh, you know, my dad lived and then felt bad that he told me.
1: Yes. Okay. So, so that's he separate, thought that, yeah, – it feels to like the, he broke. <laughs> Wait. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. <laughs> okay. So – so he shared you this whole story. You're like, yeah. motherfucker. You know, I can't believe yeah. this. You know, I don't even know what what was my childhood exactly, you know? Yeah. And uh, your father thinks he's he's gonna die soon. I gotta share this, you know. I may as well share this now, you know. Right. Maybe And I'm the only kid he shared it with. There's four kids in my family. And may and did he share it with your mom? He did. Okay. Did did you ever hear her opinion on this?
2: I said to him, Did you tell mom? And he said, Yeah, she's furious. <laughs> And I said, did, <laughs> I said, didn't you tell her that you did it for her own protection, that she couldn't know what you were doing? And uh-huh. he said, yeah. Have you met your mother?
1: That's hilarious. He's
2: actually a really funny guy. Like, he's he really funny. funny. Well, he probably has
1: a lot of gallows humor from what he He has does. gallows
2: humor, but yeah. also, like, you know, he speaks six languages. He's in Mensa. Like, he's yeah. really a smart guy. He has right. a really
1: great sense of humor. Okay, he's a so, genuinely funny guy. So, giving him the benefit of the doubt, he's thinking, okay, I'm dying right now. Mm-hmm. Let me at least salvage some kind of I relationship. I got to unload this on somebody. Or... It to be generous. Let me establish some kind of relationship with my son.
2: Yeah, that's being generous. I think. Yeah. It, I think it was. I think it was. Uh, well, come on, th- Pete. There's th- got to be like, a
1: little bit of this in there. I think
2: it was like. Listen, the the relationship has evolved from this point. Sure. And has had a genuine rapprochement. Like I have Great. a relationship with my dad.
1: That's now. So amazing.
2: That's incredible.
1: That's fantastic. He takes
2: me to these things, and I think I told you this. in every year they throw this dinner in D.C. It's and they call it in the newspapers the Spy yeah. Prom, yeah. but it's basically the it's the prom. it's the William Donovan dinner for the yeah. the OSS Society, mm-hmm. and it basically honors the clandestine services. And like, there's lots of Navy Seals walking right. around, and sort of Admiral McRaven got the award one year when I went. Yeah, and. Uh, my dad has taken me into these things and like, you know, every so often he'll see somebody he knows. Yeah. And, you know, to be inside that circle with him is is amazing. Right. And I, I, I wouldn't have conceived of it 20 years ago. Yeah. I had
1: no relationship with him basically. And now you can even point to some historical things knowing that your dad may have been a part of it. Uh, yeah, well, he's told me some stuff that he was yeah. a part of, but as we were going to talk about, he
2: thinks he broke, so he clammed up.
1: Yes, yes. So, so your dad doesn't <laughs> he's die. P- he's pissed. He, he doesn't die. Me, he continues to live. Yeah. So, so he does he, the second round of chemo. He beats They thought he was going to have to talk
2: with one of those voice box things. Right. He doesn't. They took most of one one vocal cord, got taken out, most right. of it. So he talks like a gangster. He talks like this. <laughs>
1: I told you this was a Scorsese like, movie. He fully—it's yes. like the Irishman. Right. That's
2: what he talks like now. Yeah. He talks like a gravelly-voiced gangster now. Right. And uh, so he's like,
1: fuck, I shared all this stuff and yeah. I didn't die. I spilled all this shit. <laughs> so he feels he's a rat. Right? Yep, basically. <laughs> but ironically, you guys now have a relationship. Yeah,
2: yeah. And it's where pretty are you, crazy. where are
1: you guys now with that?
2: We're in a good place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we talk to each other all the time, and, you mm-hmm. know, I— uh, you know, I email with him a lot and, the, you know, he spends ha- – they spend half the year in New York and half the year up at their house in Maine. Yeah. And uh, he and my mom are still together. Right. Which is incredible. Yeah. Um, if you say to my mother, why do you think your marriage has lasted so long? She said, your father travels. Yeah. And that's true. He does yeah. to this day. He's like, I got a board meeting in Texas. <laughs> he's 85. <laughs> I got to <so> go. <laughs> I got to go. I got a board meeting. <laughs>
1: as soon as it gets nasty in there, got to exactly go. Exactly right. Put Pull the itinerary it. on the fridge. Exactly. You know exactly where You know where I'm going. Wow, it's su- it's such an amazing story. I really think you should write a book about it, or or so if you can. You know, if there's there's so I many- wish
2: I knew more operational stuff, but every so often I get a little something out of him. That's yeah. that's fantastic. But right. like I, you know, he gave, he did give me a book. There's a book called the Mirnik Dossier written by this uh-huh. guy Charles McCary, uh-huh. who was a former CIA station chief in Egypt. And my dad always as, "This is the phrase he used, Yeah, I did some work with him. So you know when Richard Helms, who later became yeah, director of CIA, was, was running CIA in Europe, my dad's mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, I did some work with him in Austria, things like that." What do you think so that, that means? I have no idea. Right. It could be anything. It could be smuggling, right? Stuff like. Uh, do you think he's killed anybody? Well, obviously he did in Korea, right? Uh, when he was in the infantry in the Marine right. Corps, so he he's he has killed people in connection with the CIA. I don't know. Right. I think he was largely, and now I'm fully guessing, right? But little bits and pieces along the way, it's somewhat educated guessing. Uh, he was largely smuggling things, mm-hmm. including people. Wow. Uh, so here's one thing he told me. Okay. He said, see that movie Argo? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. He goes, I did Tony Mendez's first European exfil with him. So the Ben Affleck character yeah. was an exfil, exfiltration specialist. Yeah. He specialized in going into countries where he wasn't supposed to be getting people who shouldn't be there and taking them out. Wow. Witness the movie Argo. Yeah. Yeah. My dad said, yeah, we walked two German colonels. He said, we walked two Czechoslovakian colonels over the border into Germany together.
1: Jesus. Him and the, by the way. Like Bridge of Spies. Yeah, Yeah. sort of. They
2: were smuggling, you know. Communist colonels out of Czechoslovakia into Germany. Yeah, I said, "What'd you do with them?" Then he goes, "I got them jobs at the Bank of Montreal as currency traders."
1: <laughs> this is ridiculous. Isn't that hysterical?
2: It's he so- said, and I took them to. A, he said, "I took them to a barbecue at your grandparents' house where your grandfather christened them the good check and the bouncing check."
1: Nice, very nice. <laughs> This is unbelievable. There's so many layers to this which are just fascinating to me. So a
2: little thing like that tipped me off to like, okay, that's probably the sort of thing he was doing.
1: Yeah. And that was all fake name, fake passport. Right. Which he kind of started his whole life with fake names. Correct. Which I think, you know, the CIA
2: looks for people who are predisposed to this sort of thing. Do you
1: think the CIA recruited him?
2: Okay. So here's where it gets bizarre. Mm Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather, who I told you about, who made all the money, yeah. he did so with two brothers. At some point, there was a rift. He took all the money and the family business and the thousand acres in Westchester and kicked them off the property. Yep. The son of one of those guys was a guy named Walter Forsheimer, who was chief counsel of the CIA. He wrote the Espionage Act of 1947 that went to Congress to set up the CIA after mm-hmm. the OSS. I have a picture of him laying the cornerstone at Langley. I have another picture of him debriefing Gary Powers. After we got him back from the Russians. Right. Which I think I might have showed you that picture at dinner. Anyway. (laughs) So because of (laughs) that, there's a giant rift in my family. We don't talk to that side of the family. They don't talk to my side of the family. Right. That guy is in the CIA. Concurrently, my father has to leave the Marines because my mother's family basically says to him, we're not marrying our daughter off to some fighter jock. Mm -hmm. You're going into business or law school. My dad said, which one's shorter? They said business school. So he went to business school. He was pissed. He wanted to be a career Marine. My dad wanted to be stay in the Marines his whole life if he could have. Mm-hmm. So here you have a guy, speaks a bunch of different languages, has already shown an affinity for, frankly, lying because he used a fake baptismal certificate to join the Marines and then got caught and kicked out. So there's a record of that. Uh, Harvard graduate, Harvard Business School graduate. On the other side of the fence at the CIA is a guy who's pissed off at the same family my dad's pissed off at. Now, does that guy directly recruit my father? No. He was too high up in the CIA to do things like that. Uh Does he seat someone at a dinner party that my father goes to who says to my dad, we should have lunch at the Harvard Club? And that guy turns into the guy who recruits my dad? Maybe. Wouldn't surprise me.
1: Wow. So interesting. Yeah. Did your dad have an opinion on this
2: or no? I I did not. I never asked him, was Walter part of you being recruited into the CIA? Uh I never asked him.
1: And when your dad is done, done, you said he was done in the late eighties, eighty three. So, what, but he said to I me, mean, he said they always,
2: he said they always come back and ask you to do shit.
1: That's what I was going to ask. So, what happens post CIA life? I'll give you. He did tell me
2: one thing, which was he got called in to uh, cool out the Kuwaitis in Desert Storm because mm-hmm. they were very worried that Saddam was going to come in and roll right over them. Mm-hmm. My dad, one of my dad's clients. This ironic for a you know a Jewish guy at a Jewish investment bank. Yeah. One of his clients was the sovereign wealth fund of Kuwait, mm-hmm. and he did a lot of business with them. And he got called in by somebody, someone who he knew in the Middle East who had him go in there and kind of say calm down we're coming. They're not we're not going to let them come in here. We're not yeah. going to let the Iraqis come in.
1: And obviously he must he must have still had enough uh you know contacts or whatever. Or well, had he the,
2: ca- you know he when he, had left, some kind of when he left the investment people bank, to, to him? Right? He had a very successful career after that as a venture capitalist yeah. in the ener- in the energy sector doing green energy. Right. He made a lot of money in geothermal, made a lot of money in uh you know solar and tidal power. Right. So, yeah, he went he became like a green energy VC before that was a thing.
1: Yeah. Wow. Pete Aronson, man. Yeah. What a story. Such well, that's a, my dad's story. That's not yeah. my story. No. Well, let's talk about your story because now you come from <laughs> such an interesting, you know, background and yet you go into showbiz. So Yes,
2: which is not the done thing in my family. Yeah. For sure.
1: So why does Pete Aronson go into showbiz? And where did you go to school?
2: I went to—for uh, high school or for— Or college. Uh, I went to college in upstate New York at a place called Hobart College, okay. which is uh, about 20 miles from Syracuse. Right. And Small liberal arts
1: school, uh, about 2,000 students. And what was your major? Uh, literature. Literature? Yeah. And, and what did you imagine yourself doing?
2: Uh, I think when I went to college, I mm-hmm. thought I was going to be a lawyer, and then, you know, that's I, yeah. that, that didn't take long to set aside. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you make it out to Hollywood? Uh, when I was a junior in college, I sort of knew I wanted to get into show business, but uh-huh. no one in my family had any connections to that or knew what it was, or, you yeah. know, frankly, being sort of old money New Yorkers, they looked down their nose at it. Sure. Um, uh, so, uh, I really didn't know how to get in. And so I just went around and tried to use the, you know, the counseling office at my college to get me in somehow, some way into something that sort of vaguely resembled showbiz. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up with was an internship for Don Imus uh, wow. at 66 WNBC in New York. <laughs> uh, and that's what I did the summer before uh, I graduated from college. And the woman who ran promotion there was named Janice Panino. And the next year, she took over the NBC Page program. So I applied to be an NBC Page and I got in.
1: So you started as an NBC Page? Yeah, at 30 Rock in wow. New York. Wow. What? Uh, NBC Page, sir. And that's what eventually got you out to Hollywood. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. The NBC Page program is a great
2: program, and uh, you get assigned to the various departments inside yeah. NBC. I got assigned to the entertainment division. Yeah. In a bizarre way, I had a relationship because I would read the ratings mm-hmm. every morning to Brandon Tartikoff. Wow. Pre-fa- pre-fax machine. You read them to Brandon Tartikoff? Every morning at 9 a.m. New York time, 6 was, a.m. LA who time. Who was the head of the He network. was the
1: chairman of NBC at the time. Yeah. Just so people know. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and he would call me and I would read him only twenty two markets in the overnights back then. So I would read him the ratings. Yeah. And he would give me little notes to, he's like remind me to call Fred Silverman about Jake and the fat man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jake. And and, fat uh, man. <laughs> and I struck up a relationship with him over the phone and I he, heard he, he was took a, a shot at me. He was a great guy yeah. and talk about a great mentor. He sure. was he would hand me programming squares that would have the next three months of scheduling on them. Wow. They were like top secret. He would be like, here, make three copies of these and don't read it. And when I say that, go ahead and read it. <laughs> He would like. Right. He, he was a funny guy, and he would like. Yeah. He really was like a great mentor, and it's because of him that I moved to LA, and because of him I ended up working as a PA on the Golden Girls.
1: Yeah. So uh, the Golden Girls, uh, you got to work on a production actually. Now, uh, any good memories from that show? Tons. Yeah. Tons. Such
2: an amazing cast, right? Amazing cast, all Broadway trained actors. You yeah. know, and it was really the as you well know, and you you've made multis and you've made sure. uh, single cams. The multicams, because you you did theater as an actor, sure. are the closest you're going to get. That's Right. To that one act, it's an actors' experience. medium. It's an actors' medium, yes, and correct. it's the, and it's got the immediate gratification of the audience. Yeah, and as a joke writer, it's it's very fulfilling. And as yeah. a, as a actor, I would imagine it's very fulfilling. Completely. So you know, being able to work on that right out of the box, it made you feel like you're in show business.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I and mean, it, and
2: I I miss multicams. I love them. As I an, really, as do. an art form,
1: I really miss them. The demise of the multicam, and this is not just an old codger talking. You know, it's really, you know, I think the form was. Not handled very well, let's say. You know, there were a lot of, of um, shows that didn't show off the multicam well in the late 90s, I think, and early aughts. And I think people got a bad taste in their mouth from some. But the classic shows, I mean, are amazing because yeah. of that connection between performer and audience. You know, there's really no beating that, you know, especially when they're so good like Golden Girls and that type of thing. Yeah. You know? And to able to see a performer get a laugh and hold that laugh. You know, when I think of the classic shows that did that, you know. Yeah.
2: I mean, B. Arthur could walk in and say, Ma!
1: Yeah. To Sophia, and, like, the place went bananas. (laughs) Right. And you learn so much about comedy when you're writing a show like that, right? So much. Yeah. And so from there— you kept working with Whit Thomas then. Who, I did. I was. They were really, producers of the Golden Girls. Yeah, right? I
2: was really fortunate. That company was kind of a sitcom factory, yeah. and I got there right when they opened the factory. They only right. had two shows on the air, I think, when I started as yeah. a PA on the Golden Girls. And two years later, they had seven shows.
1: Well, they did Soap, though, before that. They did. did before, so they, so soap yeah. was their
2: first big hit. Yeah. Also
1: a big Susan Harris Now, this was in the hit. day— This is back in the days, guys, when independent production companies had a chance to get shows on television because they – the networks didn't have their own studios back then. So they relied on these companies to give them content.
2: And the network paid you what was called
1: cost plus. So if your show cost, you know, a million bucks to make, okay,
2: and you went over by 100 plus, okay. Yeah. It was cost plus. They paid whatever it cost, and if you went over, the network paid that too.
1: Yeah, so you could get into profit very quickly too. Well, there was no deficit back then wow yeah. Golden Girls had a deficit but that right.
2: was the early early. it was less than 200 grand an episode right. it was
1: early days of deficit financing exactly very interesting. So from then on, Pete goes on to be an exec and all that kind of stuff. And so now let's get to our intersection here. Sure. So Pete's going to help me tell the story of the Burning Mac show, which I promised you guys I would tell you that story of what happened the rise and fall of Larry Wilmore, <laughs> 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 the Burning Mac show, and the intersection with Pete Aronson on that. Okay. So yeah. or, as I,
2: or as I call it, uh, how to burn bridges uh, and influence people. Because uh, that's what happened it, to me.
1: How to, yeah?
2: For me, it's I burned a lot of bridges
1: in that thing. How, it how was to write amazing. the Emmy award-winning pilot that you eventually be fired from? Yes, and from be and show. be told
2: you don't know how to tell a story for after winning the oh, Emmy for okay. best so writing. You're, you're spoiling I'm everything. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm> sorry.
1: <laughs> okay. So so part of what I want to do, I wanted to tell this story just to give people an insight on kind of how the business works and everything. I don't want to tell this story to indict people or to you know, throw stones because I'm past that point in my life. I don't want to like... I'm not, but you're you're much more evolved than I am. Yes, well, because it's not the purpose of it. (laughs) I I don't want to use this platform to do that type of thing, you know. So I'm not going to use names here, that's okay with you. You know, we'll just say uh, a person I might use one name. Yes, there's one name. (laughs) I've given Pete permission to use one name because I think that person's not in the business anymore. So there's one name you are allowed to use, but... Um, it's just part of who I am, basically. I that's not what I'm here to do, is to call people out in that way, you know. Um, but I'm here more to tell the story, because it's kind of a cautionary tale of show business. And I'm For not, sure. and I'm not unique in this, by the way. Every so many people have gone through this type of thing, you know. So I just want you guys to know, like, even though you see successes and stuff like that and you see people's names, this business is a roller coaster. There's ups and downs, and and through it all, you know, you really have to have a belief in yourself. You need to have, I think, a firm, uh, a system of people around you, especially family and friends, you know, and just have the stomach to, if you want to be in the business, to kind of go through it because it's going to happen at some point, you know. So anyhow, Pete and I go back, uh, as we said, you know, to the early days, and then I did a show called the PJs, and yes. you were at Disney at that time. You so were what at happened? Touchdown, what right? happened was, and yeah. actually, if I go back a little further. Um, this is when I say where Pete was going. Pete was very instrumental in me getting a uh, deal with with Touchstone yep. at that time. And I was uh, we were going to do a pilot with Gene and Reese, who were uh, writers mm-hmm. of The Simpsons, and we were going to do this pilot based on the life of, t- of Tiger Woods at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was this thing who nobody knew who Tiger was, and yeah. they're like, Wait, what is this show about? A golfer <laughs> said he's going to be the biggest thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, some absurdist comedy, but that's how I kind of got into the. The company of Touchstone at the time. Well,
2: right? you you had finished on Sister Sister,
1: and uh, I had done the show. I, I had already done at well at this time. I had already done um, Fresh Prince. Yeah, and oh, I, yeah, yeah. I'd done the show, which was um, at Fox, I remember. Yeah, with Maestro Clark? <laughs> yes, exactly. Is that what you're talking yes, about? Exactly, <laughs> Maestro Clark. And Sam Cedar, who, yeah. you know. Yeah, and John Bowman. John Bowman, yeah, produced yeah. that. Um, and then, uh, and I- Had one great joke
2: in the pilot. I know. Big Fruity, you want punishment.
1: <laughs> and the guy had to go stand in the corner. That was hilarious. <laughs> well, another good story from that is uh, that the executives at that time didn't want John Bowman's first pick for this this white character, he was kind of schlubby, and he was really funny. And John Bowman found somebody. said, this guy is great. He's out of New York. And he said, no, he's not good-looking enough. And we're like, good-looking enough? What are you talking about? And so he had to keep looking for someone else. And then he couldn't find anyone. And he said, well, can I, can I please use the person? And they said, fine. But the contract had expired. You have, like, a holding right. deal. So he had to sign him up again. But the guy said, you know what? I'll only do the pilot, but I won't do the series. And he's like, oh, but thank you at least for doing the pilot. So he does the pilot. Crushes in it, of course, right. as John had predicted. And to his word, he didn't do the series. And I thought the series suffered because of that. And that guy was Paul Giamatti. Ah, oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Paul Giamatti, he I had on that. his TV show. I love that. That's how showbiz works, you guys. Yeah. little yeah. little showbiz story there. So, Listen, um the head of
2: ABC told me Dave Chappelle isn't the lead. He's the uh, best friend. Uh, By the way, you know who played the best friend? That was friend? the Peter Tolan Hill show. Harper.
1: Yeah. Uh, By the way. I remember that show, yeah.
2: Yeah. Hill Harper is the best friend. I know. The lead was we had the right he guy in the lead. Is the best he literally is the best friend. Best friend. <laughs> yes, I know. We the right guy was playing the this best friend. This is how infuriating is. How crazy business. Show
1: business. Yeah. No notes. <laughs> we could do a whole thing about notes and so what oh, my from, God. you hear from Later Leonard Stern wrote a great book. A Martian wouldn't say that. A Martian wouldn't yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah which Absolutely. is a great book um, about my favorite Martian. All, all right, so let's go. So, so anyhow, so I'm
2: I'm working at Disney. I'm right. the EVP of. Programming yes. production
1: for Touchstone Television and Walt Disney Television. And I get a call from Nena Rodriguez, who is your ex colleague at Witt mm-hmm. Thomas, and she Correct. was working at Imagine at the time and wanted to know if I was interested in doing an animated show with Eddie Murphy, who had an idea. And
2: we had signed you to a deal at this yes, point. at Touchstone, right? And and to be fair, you had already come in and pitched, we had signed your deal. You came in and pitched Father Figure. Yes, that's right. Which was a show yeah. about an incredibly it was strict, strict dad. Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And you said it's kind of based on my dad. Yes. Like the way I grew. I had a very strict Catholic wow, upbringing. And we had it. this whole yeah. discussion about it. And I was like, this is great. This is great. This is great. Yes. Then you came in with Steve. Right. And I can use these names because it's not incriminating. Tony yeah, Krantz. Right. Yeah. Who was running Imagine TV at the yes. time. And Nena, Right. And you guys pitched together. The PJs. The PJs. Right. So you said, I want to set aside father figure. Yes. Because it feels like if we get Eddie to do this, and Brian Grazer, who ran Imagine, which was right. the production company, was running around saying, I can get Eddie to do this. Right. You Eddie, said, this is going to be a series yes. if I can get Eddie. And I was like, you're right, obviously.
1: Yeah. Well, Eddie had, had uh, told Brian that he wanted to do a show, Puppets in the Projects. It was basically <laughs> his idea. <laughs> but he wanted to do something different on television, which I love doing that stuff. So anyhow, Absolutely. we all got to get in a room. And Eddie liked us, and we made him laugh, and Brian Grazer, and and it became a thing. So we're mm-hmm. doing this show called the PJ's animated show with the Will Vinton Company, who That's did the right. California, the California Raisins. Raisins. So it was stop motion. So it was this this really exciting thing that I'm doing, and that was our first kind of working together. Yep. And And uh, you wanted to? Did you want to mention the table read, a little, uh, or or not? That sure. I, so... I,
2: I it was. Uh, there are many many memories from that, yeah. not the least of which being a. a spectacular staff that you put together you couldn't even list all the stuff that those people have gone on to do it takes too long but suffice it to say a lot of star showrunners whose names you see on TV shows were on the PJs completely Um, but one of my favorite memories was this show was loaded up with sort of heavy hitter Talent, yes, and including obviously Eddie Murphy, but also imagine with Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, and you know Tony Krantz was an XCAA agent, and Fox was the network, and Peter Roth was running Fox, and a lot yeah. of Fox people, and then Disney itself was a powerhouse. We had twelve mm-hmm. shows on the air, including Absolutely. Home Improvement. We had we had a lot of good stuff going on, so it was a big sort of power uh, uh, measuring festival, and as a result, the table read was sort of a hot ticket. So we ended up putting it in a much bigger room than we would usually do a table read, which is the table read is the basically let's read through the script once with everyone here to hear it before it goes off to yeah, get made. Yeah, it's like a big
1: multi-purpose room.
2: And so the room, I'm, I'm going to say, conservatively had 60
1: people in it mm-hmm. because
2: word was out that Eddie Murphy was coming to do this. Hadn't and,
1: done television since, done television Saturday, since Night Saturday Night, Saturday Night, Night Live. Right. And
2: everyone wanted to see Eddie, and this was a hot script, and everyone had read it. It was really funny. So even assistants mm-hmm. from various departments right. were in the room. And that's assistance from Fox and Disney and Imagine. So we're waiting, we're waiting. Eddie's late. Uh, he comes in, I'm going to say, a half hour late, dressed all in black, black sunglasses, <laughs> uh, a black suit, black turtleneck. How do you it's, remember it's all hot these things? as that, fuck in right. the valley. He walks in. I'm going to say there's four or five guys with him. Yeah. He walks in. He looks around the room, doesn't take his sunglasses off, turns around and walks out. Yeah. There's sort of a panic looked among oh, yeah. the the people at the head of the table and Larry stands up and I walk over to Larry I think Dean Valentine was still there at the time
1: yeah, I think and you're right. and yeah. Dean
2: and I were standing there with Larry and we sort of said to Larry hey you got to go out and find out why Eddie won't come in here <laughs> and Larry came, Larry left and yeah. then Larry came back in about 5 minutes later and said hey we got to kick out about half these people <laughs> I was like what do you mean he said he says there's too many people in here we can't do a table read with this many people in here yeah. it's not going to work And I said, so what do you want me to do? And Larry's like, kick out half the people. So I literally had to go around the room and basically everyone below the level of senior vice president had to leave. Yeah, And that wasn't enough. So then we kicked out some of them and got it down to a manageable size. And then Eddie came back in and did the read.
1: Well, it dawned on me that you know, Eddie's human like everyone else, but he was nervous, you know. He hadn't done... Which none of us would ever think because he was so cool. We never factored that in. We never factored it He was so cool. But he didn't he even was... make a
2: scene. just turned around and walked out.
1: He was nervous and he was honest about it. I give him a lot of credit. He... We had a really frank conversation, you know, and I really felt for him in the moment. I was like, shit, I guess so, you know. Yeah. He hadn't done this. But he came to the table and he was so funny. Oh my God. It was one of the it. most amazing crushed experience it. of my life. And Loretta guys. Divine, it, like
2: like that whole cast but crushed that. At that, that
1: moment, and I think I told you, I said, Oh shit. Of course, Eddie's the funniest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had forgotten because at that time he, his star kind of went down a little bit during that period. It started to come up because he had done Nutty Professor, mm-hmm. but remember he was like people weren't yeah, sure what to make movie, of Eddie. Metro and like people weren't sure what to make of him during that time, you know. Yeah. So in my mind, it just reaffirmed just how just raw funny Eddie is. Yeah, you know? Incredible. He was really funny. incredible. And so the show went on, you know, and we had a good time doing it. It had all its stuff and everything. So the show ended. Steve and I left. And I won think one Emmy a, or
2: nominated for Emmys. Um, the, I think
1: and, I think Jeanette Dubois won an Emmy. Right. So I always say technically it is an Emmy or it is. Show. But we were. But it was nominated for writing Absolutely. in the animation yeah, category. we were for nominated sure. for Emmys in those Simpsons days. Simpsons killed us. Shocker. Yes. <laughs> but you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know. And uh, I was, of course, I was very proud of it. But uh, so it's post uh, post PJs and. Steve and I are going to go our separate ways. And Steve and I did the show together. Steve is, is I'll say, a white guy. You know? he, he is. Just so you know who Steve is. One of my best buddies, by the way. Brilliant writer. We met on, on Living Color. Steve's a brilliant writer. and um, But we both contributed equally to that show. For sure. You know? So my first lesson about racism in Hollywood, yeah. and how it works, is we go out to get— uh, Overall deals, you know, to try— Which, when
2: you come off a successful show that's nominated for
1: Emmys, generally speaking, you're the
2: showrunner slash creator.
1: You're going to go get a deal at a studio. So Steve gets a huge deal, you know. I won't say the dollar amount, but it was really nice, you know, and he got it, you know, know, I think it was at 20th or whatever. Yeah, it was at Fox, Yeah, 20th. I couldn't get anything. Every, all people said was, well, it'd be nice if Larry did something on his own so we could see his own writing. In other words, we'll take the white man's word for it, that he's just good, you know. And yeah. me, the person who brought Steve in. Yeah. You know. Well, that had, was the irony of the yes, entire PJ exactly, situation was you know?
2: that started because you had an overall at Disney, exactly. not Steve. Exactly.
1: But I was not given the benefit of the doubt. This is where I always said the benefit of the doubt is even more racist than people are. <laughs> like, the benefit of the doubt well, is a racist motherfucker, you know. I would say these days it, it's so— it's also overt. It's also yes, exactly. There's,
2: there's no subterfuge. But it, anymore. it was
1: my first taste of just blatant, just the blatancy of of how racist, of how racially ingrained people's thinking was, yeah, especially in terms of, sure. of writing.
2: For sure, and it really
1: made me think about so many different things and conversations I would had with some of my fellow writers of color, um, and and how I was insisting at that time that look, let, let me give you another context for this. At that time if you were on what was called a quote-unquote black show, it was deemed less than. Yeah. And, it was, and people thought it was not as smart, quote-unquote, as other shows. If you were a black writer, sometimes you were put in a pile of black writers. Now they say diverse writers or whatever. But <laughs> then it was black writers. But they weren't considered as good or whatever. I don't care what anybody says. That's how it was considered no and i, I listen
2: it started with what you said initially that's a black show
1: exactly and people said black show as a pejorative overtly. not as a description but they said it overtly in but, meetings and they said it as a pejorative not as a description and yeah that that is very it, I, that it, was very clear what it indicated in my mind.
2: was you can't program that show there that show won't syndicate It doesn't work on the night when all the other shows are white. And when you said black show, it meant bad
1: things. And that it wasn't as good, too. Yeah. It was all of those things, right? And which is why they always put, they, I thought they had to put black shows all on one night. They clustered them. Yeah, I always called it niggat night," is what I called it. I said that. You know, I'm I'm like, why do you think they have to go? I said the Jeffersons didn't have to be programmed with other black shows. They came on after. You know, it was on CBS. It was a Norman Lear show. They just stuck it on after Norman Lear. Same thing with Good Times. You know, a good show's a good show. You know, but and you know, even more cynically, that started
2: because UPN and the WB needed viewers. Who were the last
1: viewers what left? It started with Fox, actually. Who,
2: yeah, yeah, initially. But all startup networks, so Fox, UPN, yeah. WB. Fox, Use Martin, and Living Color, Living Single. Who were the last viewers left watching broadcast who right. don't pay for cable? Well, also African American audience, but also Great. the
1: audience will do that, and the audience wasn't being addressed in that's a big way. That's how cynical way. it is, but that's my point. Yes, exactly. And
2: they would do it to pump numbers up, and then when of the course. numbers got to where they were, that they would have sell as it I call ethnic cleansing. They would
1: kill, <laughs> yes. kill the shows off. Yes, exactly. They would cleanse. That's exactly. So right. this is this is a very cynical exactly thing. Right. And I had conversations with many of but my, but it's all real. It's all real. Yes, this is many of my writers of color friends. Let's say um, one of them. I remember talking to to Janine uh, Sherman, um, who's a very successful right yep. now but back in the day I hired her I'm on, Bernie the, on, on the PJs actually oh on the PJs yeah, originally, yeah. Um, I gave her one of her first jobs but uh, we were having a conversation we were on Jamie Foxx and we were having a conversation she said how come there's no black sign phone and I said Jamie because you haven't written it yet and then I realized you know what I haven't either Yeah. you know I said we have to just not try to put content out there but I made a commitment myself to be in that same category as what is called a smart show mm-hmm. you know as having a black show so i uh, and it's always been my mission statement, not to just put us on the air, but to compete on the same, on a level playing field. So they can't level those those accusations at us. So anyhow, I'm in a position where I got a script deal at Regency Television, That's where right. Pete was at the time. Uh, he went over to Regency, you know, my buddy who, and I wasn't mad at him either. You know, I was happy for him that he got that as he deserved. I just felt I deserved the same and type you of did. thing. But it got— Like a fraction of that for just to do a script, not Mm -hmm. some big overall deal. But I'm like, whatever, I'll try to do what I can do out of it. But out of that came the Bernie Mac show. So I inherited that. That was sitting on – that was – Gail Berman had made that deal before I got there.
2: Right. And when I got to uh, the job at Regency, I was thrilled, obviously, because I wanted to do something else with you after the PJs. Right. And I saw that there was a script there, and we – uh, I, I think you were one of my first calls when I got that yeah. gig. Because people was like, like, oh, shit. You like, dealer?" You have a script here. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember, just got this job running right when you
1: called me, You said,
2: um, motherfucker, you got a script here? And I was like, yeah, I got a and script I was, here. And yeah. uh, I remember vividly asking you yeah. what you wanted to do. And you said, I have a couple ideas. There's a couple things yeah. I want to talk to you about. And then you came in. We sat down. And you said, do you remember the father figure pitch yeah. from Disney? And I was like, "Uh, we set that aside, didn't we, because of the PJs? And you're like, yes, exactly. And then you did that pitch. And I can't remember if it was in the meeting. Uh, For some reason, I remember being on the phone. But you called me or you told me, have you seen Kings of Comedy? Exactly. And I had just seen it, literally
1: within the past, right.
2: I'm going to say 72 hours of right. that meeting. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. And Kings, you said, Kings
1: of Comedy with Bernie Mac and DLC and Cedric, Cedric and, and Steve, Steve Harvey. Right.
2: And it was, it was out, it was actually a, a giant hit movie at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a really big opening. And I had gone to see it, and you said, have you seen it? And I said, yeah. And you said, Bernie Mac is the father. Mm-hmm. At
1: the end of the pitch right or the, or the day after when we were on the phone, right
2: I was like, that is fucking genius, we should do that so
1: that was the Not geni- even question. that was the genesis of it. now, the second part of it, now let me say this is that even though that was the first initial thinking of it, my thinking was a little different at that time. I wanted to do something different based on what I was looking at in reality, you know, so I kind of went away from what the father figure idea was, and I was looking at shows like um there was a show called 1900 House where the people had to people live, had to like live like in the 1900s. Yeah. And the show was filmed with these cameras and everything. And there was a confessional camera where you had to like say your sins. I ate a Snickers bar. I wasn't <laughs> supposed to. you know. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to tell a story, you know, where the action isn't, you know, kind of pushed to us like in a. Regular sitcom, but it feels like we're observing, like we're flying the wall, you know. And, and so I came up with this visual idea of how to tell a, a story. And when I saw Kings of Comedy, I realized that Bernie would be the right person in his story about his, wife, his sister's kids, you know, who are on crack and all that stuff. That would be the emotional way in. So and I, I also – I would say the other – the uh, visual and technique
2: yeah. reference that you also used, and I think it's because as a performer and a comedian, you saw this in Bernie – was Jack Benny, in the sense yes. that you said, I want to be able to let
1: him sly look yes. at the camera without screwing up the narrative. Right, and also, I couldn't compete with the performer Bernie on stage. If I had him in front yeah, of an that's audience, right. that he couldn't too. be as raw as he can in stand-up. But if I was more sly about it, and he had more of an intimate relationship with the audience— That's a way to present him and show a different side of him. So, all those things went into consideration, Mm -hmm. you know. But from the beginning, I thought of the show very differently than a normal sitcom. The rhythms were different, Um, stories were different. I wrote it completely different. It didn't have the same type of cliffhangers because of my observation of what was happening in reality. You jumped into scenes that were already happening.
2: Completely that. All All these types of
1: stuff were observed. In fact, the director, Ken Kwapis, and I, we were watching French New Wave films together right. to kind of I prepare ourselves. Um, <laughs> Truffaut, and some of those things. you know. So there was a lot of thinking that went into this and a lot of research. I was a theater major in school. I studied playwriting. So I had a background in these types of narratives and everything. I do, I'm do. i telling you this just so you guys know. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't just a stand-up comic just writing no, jokes No, but for or the, from
2: the jump off, you conceived it yes. specifically as an anti Exactly. Sitcom version. The rhythms
1: had to be different. It was it was different from all, all the other the shows. Script. As like, Bernie used to say, it's refreshing. Yes, exactly. Remember, <laughs> oh man, we miss his voice so oh, much. Right? Yeah. It's, every day, you know. But it, for me, from the beginning, it was it was thought through. Mm, you know, for sure. So my conflict from the beginning was they never got it. The people who I sold it to, you know, the people at the mm-hmm. studio and network. Correct. I'm using the general terms yeah, now. Yeah. You know, people know which network it was on. Can, yeah, it was on Fox. <laughs> but people know who I'm talking about. But I believe those people never understood it, and they always gave me notes um, that related to regular sitcoms. You know, and this wasn't that. You know, we the Office wasn't on TV yet. You know, and all these other shows that had this kind of style later. You know, people were used to, it. but at this time, nobody was doing something like this. Absolutely. You know? So the in
2: fact, just to show how diverse your viewpoints were. The person we came up against, who was in charge of both the network and the studio, was adamant about making a multicam.
1: Right. No, and I had to fight that.
2: And from the jump off, you were basically saying, in many, many very nice, very yeah. appropriate ways. Right. Because back then, as Larry said, if you were a black showrunner, right. and you started talking shit, you were going to pay for that.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: And yeah. so Larry was incredibly diplomatic far more so than I was, about (laughs) saying this isn't that show. Right. I have an idea for a show and this is and the show is in my head and right. here's
1: what it looks like. Exactly. And I was very clear about that. And very Bernie, clear. And Bernie understood and it from important. the beginning too. It was it was very clear from the beginning it, it that wasn't, this is what the show I wasn't was. trying to figure it out. I figured it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I knew exactly and what I wanted to do. You can't turn this into right. the Steve
2: Harvey show. It that's is not exactly a multi-cam right. sitcom. But it doesn't work. That's like what that.
1: they were used to. Yes. So they were giving and notes. And what they
2: initially wanted.
1: Exactly. So but they were giving notes based on that. Correct. And it's like like how come you like how, like how come the characters don't have a style of joke that they do and they do that joke all the time, like on Cheers and everything? Yeah, like, like, a like, like Yes, how come, like the wife doesn't have a catchphrase? And I would say because she's a three-dimensional woman <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't speak in catchphrases. Like that was my answer. <laughs> I'm like, I'm presenting a three-dimensional woman to you that doesn't speak in catchphrases. That's why she talks like that. But um, so that's what we were up against, you know. So anyhow... The uh, I don't want to go too long on this, but I want to cut cut to the quick. Subject.
2: No, but it's important to set up that it, there was a super clear, because everything right. you look for, speaking in 30 years as a producer executive right. in this business, you look for a super clear right. distilled point of view right? and some sort of right. visual aesthetic that the creator wants to That's use right. to execute it. So, and this show had it day
1: one. So basically, here's what I'm up against, guys. So they don't understand what I'm doing. And so the interpretation turns into he doesn't know what he's doing. Exactly. And that's where our relationship fractures because they think I'm incompetent. They think, and this is why I gave you the information about how black writers are viewed and how black shows are viewed because it goes into that pile. That's the assumption. That's the benefit of the doubt that I'm not given that someone else may be given. And, and, you know, how much they know me, all these other things, you know, I'd already, you know— every show I had done was like award-winning shows, even up to that point, you know? So all of that didn't matter to them. It just went out the window. this classification. So every time I fought with them, their point of view was that you don't know what you're doing. And there was this wall I was up against. And one of the reasons I'm telling you this is because I fought this fight so people wouldn't have to fight this thing. Yeah, You know, and I was kind of the sacrificial lamb on this. And eventually, after winning... We won a TV Critics Award for Best Comedy, TV Critics Award for New Comedy. Uh, I won an Emmy for the pilot script. We Golden were Globe Golden nomination Globe for Bernie and the we show. We won a Humanitas Award, NAACP Peabody. Image Award. We won a Peabody. We won all these awards, guys. Keep in mind, this is in the first year, season
2: one,
1: and even- the pilot won the Emmy. And, yes, writing. and even after all of this, they still treated me like I was incompetent. And even one of them told me so to my face that they didn't think I knew what I was doing. Had the audacity to tell me that to my face. I I'll don't know you, if I ever I'll, told you that. I'll Pete. go you one better. Uh, I'm <laughs> yes. sta- Larry wins the <laughs> Emmy. He
2: walks off stage to do press. At the In those days, there was a bar. Uh, they would let you drink during the Emmy shows. And you could walk out to the lobby at the bar at the Shrine Auditorium and have a cocktail, I walk out there in a celebratory mood because my buddy just won the Emmy for writing a pilot at the studio that I run. So it's kind of a big win for everybody. And I'm getting a cocktail, and I run into the main, you know, nemesis in this situation. And I say to him, pretty jubilantly, pretty fucking cool, huh? Mm -hmm. And he looks right back at me. This is uh, six minutes after Larry walked off stage. And he said, yeah, now if you can just get him to tell a story. Unbelievable. You're literally holding the Emmy in yes, your hand backstage. Know. You know who votes on that? Writers.
1: I know. Exactly. And uh, six months after that, I'm like, fired. He could
2: tell a story, dude. Don't sweat it.
1: And six months after that, I'm fired from the show, you know. Yep. And and I have to tell you this part of it, too. And this is the reason why I was fired is because of everything I just told you. The outpouring of love and support I got from my fellow writers in the business and this is not—I'm not saying just black writers, white writers. And by the way, my friends, my writer friends, who would call me after episodes aired and said how brilliant they thought the show was and good job, I had never experienced that. But people as high as—I ran into Stephen Botchko, who I had never met, and said, Larry, he gave me a hug. This is one of my idols in the business. You know, he started on Columbo, his first yeah. show, right? You know, created Hill Street Blues. Hill Street. He, he said, Larry, I want to tell you, your show was brilliant don't worry about this, this crap, man. You know, we've gone through this type of You're great. That meant so much to me to hear things like that from, and from peers, people like Phil Rosenthal is a buddy yeah. of mine who was doing, everybody loves Raymond called me. But so many people, just the outpouring of love, this pre Twitter days too, you know, yeah. was that was the thing that told me that, okay, you're okay. Everything's yeah. going to be okay. And it really helped me to course correct um, in terms of an etern- internally and go on in the business. You know? Can I but, talk
2: about the meaning where it went off the rails? Sure.
1: Because Ooh. it has one of my favorite
2: Larry Wilmore moments.
1: Okay, yeah. This is where I said, okay, so okay, basically, things, have, for things have
2: now come to a head. Right. We're in season two of the show. The person running it, the network in the studio during— season two was becoming more and more intrusive and giving the same notes over and over and over again. And Larry, who had just won the Emmy for writing, was not particularly inclined to take those notes because he was making a great show that continued to get a lot of critical acclaim into its second season. And in my opinion, the second season was the best season of the show. And... As we got further into that season, things became more and more tense, and there's a healthy tension in these businesses sure, at all times, but this was not healthy tension. And like I
1: said, I'm not unique in this. This, this happens
2: was, to many It happens people. to showrunners all right, the time, right, right. It was, but this was not a healthy tension. There was a nastiness to it, exactly. and in my opinion, racism played a part in it. And here's where things went off the rails. We were in the second season, and the after 13 episodes, <laughs> the network was not happy with the way, quote, the way stories were being told, right. close quote. So Larry and I went to a meeting with the various executives at the network and the studio all in one room. And the person who was the main antagonist in this basically says to Larry, your stories don't make any sense. They kind of like bop along through act one. You know where it's going. Act two, okay. I see what's happening. And then act three, it's like it comes out of nowhere. And Larry (laughs) says— Wait, wait, wait.
1: wait. But he also said— because the way you tell a story, he went into lecturing. Yeah. He says, is, "You set up something in the first act, yeah. and then you come back." He gave, to he it gave a little. He act. gave
2: a little primer on yeah. Aristotelian logic <laughs> yeah. and and structure. <laughs>
1: the unity
0: um, of time. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Joseph
2: Campbell's the hero. We right. we, we got he into all of it. The power of myth. He gave us the little speech, but <laughs> yes. he tried to tell us how stories work, and then Larry counterpointed that with what, to be fair, Larry had been saying since the very beginning of the show, which was basically what you're saying is you don't like the fact that you can't tell where my stories are going and you can't tell how it's going to end. And the guy who was criticizing him said, yes. And Larry said, well, I think that's a
1: good thing. <laughs> yes, I said. So what you're saying is the way my stories end up is a surprise. Is a surprise. <laughs> yeah. He said, yes. And he said, well, I think that's a good thing. Yes. As does
2: anyone who knows anything yes, about stories. Yes, it's story. unpredictable. So yes. is a surprise <laughs> for the uh, audience is a good thing. Yeah. So uh, this did not go over well. And there were some uh, some awkward yeah. moments in the room, and it got very tense. And yeah, the guy basically well, turned he red insulted and me, to my case, he insulted yeah. him. Basically, right. he insulted Larry. So the meeting breaks up, and this is where I got in trouble because I want to say the thing sure. where I, I said I prefaced this with burning bridges, and right. this is where I burned it. I basically said a version of the following. And I said, here's how I know you're not being fair to this guy. You're accusing him of not being able to tell a story. I'm going to set aside the fact that he just won the Emmy for Best Writing, which is voted on by writers who, generally speaking, know how to tell a story. Here's what I'm going to say to you. It's not fair to accuse this guy of not being able to tell a story because if I took his resume, which has over 100 episodes produced of half-hour comedy television on it, and I put the name Mort Finkelstein across the top, there's no way you would say this shit. And that's when things went badly because uh, that guy who yeah. I said that to ended up calling my boss and demanding that I be fired.
1: And just so you know, the way this story ends, ultimately, that guy is out of the business. Yes, he <laughs> he he's out of the business. No longer in the business and nobody cares about him anymore. It's true.
2: It's but true.
1: Uh, anyhow, thanks, Pete, for telling this story and for telling your story. Of course. Um, Thank it's you. It's was saying. Pete, by the way, has championed actors of color, writers of color shows, diverse shows his entire career. Um, the people he's worked with, it's not just me, but Pete has championed so many new voices that deserve to be on television. I'm just giving you your props, man, for what Thanks, he's done. Man. And he continues to do it. He continues to do it to this day. hes It's interesting. One of the reasons why I wanted to tell this story, this guy who came from this interesting life, life of privilege, too, made it his life's mission almost to put the underdog on television, yeah. you know? And... Uh, It's part of who he is, just as a person, too. So Pete Aronson, still killing it, still crushing it, (laughs) and uh, hope we get to work together. Yeah, man, I would love that. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me.